A good Wednesday morning to you. Ryan Jesperson here with you on a March 10th edition of Real Talk alongside the show's technical producer, Samuel G. Brooks. Episode good morning to you, my 75. man. Episode 75. Episode uh, 75. Yep, I, I checked this morning because uh, you got me You got me a little caught yesterday. I didn't not, mean not to put you on the episode. spot. Oh, no, it's fine. I usually know these things because when do. you post the podcast, you see the numbering system. Yeah. yeah. Episode 75. Who would have thought? Hey, kid. Who would have thought, kid? We did it. We really did it. Uh, looking forward to the show this morning. I uh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna pull back the curtain and reveal something to you, real talkers. I blew it. Uh, in corresponding with a, we have an interview. I'm not gonna. Well, it doesn't matter who it is. Uh, but uh, we, we had a great guest lined up, and uh, we're gonna talk about conspiracy theories and radicalization. And I blew it on time zone differences and scheduling because she's chiming in from Paris, France, which means that it's not happening. Which means that you and I have recently discovered that we have 30 minutes on our hands which is actually really exciting before we get into we know our, how to fill 30 we know minutes. how to fill 30 minutes you never fill we're gonna you're gonna invest your time with us friends and we're gonna get it because i thought that we could actually get into i'm looking forward to this oh my gosh what is this you have You've oh got, well i mean this has been sitting under my desk for like two weeks <laughs> And I don't know. I'm looking for a chance to bring it out because the thing is, like, real talk time is very different. It's okay. like everything operates on ish time. Oh wow! So for like, those that are tuning in on the podcast, yeah. you need to describe what you're holding. up I'm right holding now. up a clock that has most numbers removed and uh. just says on the 11 and the 10 spot, 11 ish and 10 ish, and yeah. on the four and the five spot, about four and about five. And I think that that's a pretty accurate <laughs> representation of how we measure time on this show. Well, it's because this is a, we're finding Also, this a, clock is not set, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're not, you're a, not seeing anything accurate here. It doesn't matter. Uh, this is, well, we're in an interesting position. We're in an interesting predicament because some of our real talkers treat this like you would a live talk show. They're with us at 1030 Eastern at 830 Mountain every single morning. And we do time checks sometimes, although you probably have noticed I'm moving away from those. And and and, and this is how they start their day with yeah, this show, like absolutely. you would start your day with any other TV show, with any other radio show. Of course, we're live on YouTube. Uh, you can subscribe to our channel there or you can stream us live using the Mixler audio app. You can link to that on our main page at RyanJesperson.com as well. The majority of our real talkers check in on the podcast. And so they don't care. They're not even going to notice when they're walking their dogs at 10 o'clock at night or they're driving home at four in the afternoon and they're catching the podcast. They don't care if there's a newscast that hits hard at 9 a.m. Mountain. They don't care about that. It doesn't matter. I mean, at some point in time, somebody in Radioland decided that newscasts were on the hour. And I mean, from an organizational perspective i guess that makes sense but like sure. you know that's that's not a hard and fast rule we have to live by so what's coming up this morning coming up this morning we're going to talk to we have a family law roundtable which we're uh really excited for many of you have have written in over the course of these uh you know 75 shows that we've done to talk at ryanjesperson.com and you tell us what you want to see on the show you tell us the type of guests you want to hear. Sometimes you don't even tell us the guests you'd like to hear. You just describe your situation and you say, you know, it's something that might be helpful would be maybe something that might help me sort this out. And a lot of it comes down to family law and to conflicts and, and to things that you're experiencing, whether it's uh, divorce or separation or custody battles, whatever the case may be. So I want to invite you and I'm going to be checking my please don't leave the questions 
uh, on the live chat. It's too difficult for us to keep up with that because it scrolls quickly. We I think we figured out one day that we average it. We average a comment about every six seconds when we're live on the air. So this it's not it's not helpful for us if you're posting comments now for 40 minutes from now about our family law roundtable. However, if you want to either shoot me a tweet, use the hashtag RealTalkRJ or shoot us an email to talk at RyanJesperson.com. We've got an hour um, with these three legal experts. We're going to be talking to Ian Holloway. Ian's the dean of law at the University of Calgary. Marcus Sixta is the founder of Crossroads Law. Marcus has an interesting uh, background before becoming a lawyer. He was a social worker, uh, an expert in family law, and he's launching Coach My Case uh, which is a service that Marcus is. I mean, he'll tell us about it, but he says it's going to help the growing number of Canadians going it alone in court because they can't afford a lawyer. You hear these all the time, even when you see it in movies. I know that movies aren't real life, obviously, but even in a movie when someone says, I mean, unless you're expecting a dramatic plot twist, if someone says, I'm going to represent myself, your honor, you go, oh, geez. Yeah, I've I've represented myself before. It's uh do your homework before you do it. Are you? Uh, that's, that's am I allowed to? I've true, just yeah. learned this about you. Are we allowed to ask you about that? Uh, I've I've done it twice. All right. So um, one was a speeding ticket, which uh, that's which not I what I'm talking about. Sam. No. Okay. The second time uh, I was speeding suing someone. Ticket. Second time I was suing someone. Okay. And I and I completely represented myself, and I, I can't dive, of course, into all of the gritty details of it. Did you win? Uh, I did. Yes, I got a judgment. Ah, yep. boy. Yep. So uh, the the lawyer or the the judge was impressed with my my ability to to be a lawyer on the spot. I guess he actually I said he thought you, I'd put a, a lot of work into it. I can it, see so. you being a formidable, yeah. uh, you know, sort of a uh, armchair lawyer. But it was definitely one of those situations where, like, had I not done piles of research ahead of time, I wouldn't have actually been confident walking into that courtroom. So it's it's it is very very trepidation like certainly anything around family law i mean this was a small civil litigation this was something where you know it, it was it was pretty immaterial to my life if i won or not um never in a situation like family law would i ever represent myself i, I know people that have been through that system it's horrendous sometimes yeah and and especially when you don't have a ton of dough oh yeah to make your way through it which is most people right um rounding out that panel is going to be joanne stark joanne's president of the legal coaches association she's the director of advocacy for the canadian bar association uh, she's been a lawyer in saskatchewan and bc for almost 30 years so she's this is going to be great so if you have questions uh, i will be checking my email through the course of the show and of course we'll be checking our hashtag as well i see that the premier's executive director of issues management is tweeting back at me this morning trying to distance himself from ezra levant matt wolf uh former executive producer for ezra's show is now trying to spin it that he didn't actually work for ezra while producing his show do you work for me sam just curious just to put you on the spot would you perceive that you work for me if someone said i was on the record i work for ryan jesper if you produce a show for a host, you work for the host. That's correct. That's pretty straightforward. Yes. Matt, I mean, Matt Matt can spin. I mean, the only guys I know that spin better than Matt all work as professional nightclub DJs. Uh, and even then, he gives them a run for their money. But he can do his best. The reason I'm tweeting about that, you can check it out if you follow me on Twitter at Ryan Jesperson. Um, Ezra Levant, whose name I've now mentioned more in three minutes than I have in 74 previous episodes of this show, is on trial in Edmonton for defamation. 
And uh, it couldn't happen to a better guy. And we'll look forward to what else is new. We'll look forward to seeing how that goes. These shows each and every morning are presented by the team at Bitcoin. Well, our presenting sponsor. I don't have to tell you that crypto is making news in 2021. I mean, geez, it's been making news for the last 10 years, but the journey is getting more and more interesting to watch. I had a buddy reach out to me yesterday. Won't say who it is. He says, I know it's a loaded question. But if you were me, he's got some savings. He's got a pretty decent chunk of savings, like a buy a car and pay cash type chunk of savings. So by loaded, he's literally loaded. (laughs) Well, at the moment. Yeah. At the moment he is. And he says to me, if you were me, would you invest it all in Bitcoin? And I went, I'm not answering that question. I'm not comfortable answering that question. I said, but if you want to ask somebody about it and then make your own decision, the team at Bitcoin Well is the team to ask. And you can find them under the Sponsors tab. They're right at the top at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We're about 20 minutes away from our family law roundtable, which uh, means that we do have time now to, to get to some of your emails, which is great. We always have those locked and loaded. Plus, I was thinking it might be kind of fun for us to take a run through this week's question of the week. Uh, you can you can, of course, answer our question of the week every week at Ryan Jesperson. Uh, yes. All the tough, tough issues we're digging into on this one. Well, we we uh, we took it. We took it um, in a bit of a different direction this week. Because we did ask people to do some heavy lifting for the past number of weeks. We asked you to chime in on, like, you know, choose the next governor general. That's no joke, because obviously the, gov- the federal government is going to listen to what real talkers have to say, obviously. So you had to take your vote seriously. There's a, there's a direct feed to Real Talk in Rideau Hall. They're, and then we're broadcasting you. it 24 7. Well, they are keeping an eye on the show. True. I will say that. It was, uh, I won't, you know, we were talking to somebody yesterday in a pretty high, pretty, pretty, let's just say that their office, there's a good chance that the walls are made of mahogany, my friend. And we're hoping to have a conversation with the person they uh, represent very soon. But at ryanjesperson.com, as a matter of fact, Sam, uh, why don't we just get into it? Because I think this would be a lot of fun. Our question of the week. Sure. And then we'll get to some emails from from viewers some emails from listeners as submitted by our website uh you can see right here the talk to us link in the top right hand corner you click question of the week at ryanjesperson.com and it takes you in okay so click here to respond it's nice and easy this is presented by our friends the team at y station they're the official research and strategy partner so i'm gonna just okay so i'm here in edmonton so i'm gonna move that on now here we go first question sam i i would like to so invite you to please please speak freely at any point here Feel free to vociferously disagree okay. with any assertion I may make. We're going to learn a lot about our relationship, about our friendship I think here so, right now. Yeah. Uh, right. Question number one, how do you feel about raisins? They are either an amazing and delicious innovation of human agriculture or the absolute worst thing ever. Oh, uh, amazing and delicious invasion of human agriculture. Okay, For no. sure, hands down, we've... we've previously discussed before the the personnel in this room pro raisin fiercely pro raisin okay um now i'm going to be clear when i make my way through this question of the week because i try to answer it every week as well i'm going to ultimately you can have your feedback but you have the right to do your question of the week too okay so so even if we disagree on something i'm going to put my answer down pineapple on pizza a welcoming and delicious topping or a crime against the pizza gods welcoming delicious topping sam you and i agree again that's two for two Looks like there will be a Hawaiian pizza at the Real Talk Christmas party in, you know, nine months from now. Okay. Skinny jeans, still cool or no, Boomer? 
like, okay, skinny jeans don't work on me. I think on the right people, they look cool. <laughs> but I've tried on a pair and it was not good. Where do they, where do they, um, choke you up so to speak sam is it in the thigh it's usually in the thigh is it in the calf you know for me it's the calves for you it's the thigh uh but i still like skinny jeans i mean and that's also relative like what's skinny right because i think like skinny is just a little bit tighter than boot cut but some other people's definition of skinny might be like skinny like you need clarinet like cork grease to get into the jeans um i'm gonna go with still cool I, yeah, I mean, and that's just it. Is I like, uh, I mean, I'm not wearing them. I still think they're cool. Thank you for not wearing them. Yeah. If if, if they make you feel uncomfortable. Well, yeah, you know. you know, I want you to feel comfortable here. Now, this is this is a tough one. Okay. okay. Um, this is this is where I think that that a lot of people are. Oh, what did I do here? Did I? I oh no. Oh, oh you no. Might have gone back. I went back by accident. Oh, now now I'm screwing up the survey. Okay, we're going to have to stay on this. I can't click off of it. I've just learned this lesson. So raisins are amazing. We're back to that. Pineapple is a welcoming and delicious topping. Skinny jeans are still cool. Now, here's where people are going to get hung up. Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or 50 duck-sized horses? A, a horse-sized duck sounds terrifying That would mess me. you up. I think I could take 50 duck-sized horses like they're just they're down there and they're on the ground and and hopefully there's some sort of horse wrangling i can do can i am, am i allowed to bring in like a duck-sized cowboy to round them all i don't up? think that you're gonna be i mean i my my impression here is that you're you know you're hiking you know you're walking through a mountain meadow and then all of a sudden you are confronted with you don't have tools around you have what you have um, I'm going to say 50 duck sized horses because in my mind I could do sort of sweeping leg kicks. Yeah. You know, uh, a, a horse sized duck. You're done. I mean, that bill. Oh, one snap and you're like, it'll like snap you in half. Now, here we go. This is something that's going to be mm. lost on those listening to the podcast. You're going to have to go answer the question for yourself because there's a very helpful diagram. The proper way for dogs to wear pants. Sam, can we bring the image up? We're going to ask you to choose between A or B. Now, if you can use your imagination on this, A is a pair of pants that goes across the entire torso of the dog. That's where the belt goes. And then all four legs are in pant legs. B is how you might assume a dog would wear pants, which is on its hind legs with its tail poking through the butt of the pants, the butt so, of the jeans. I'm going to invoke Kelly a little bit here. And she tweeted this a couple days ago. Um, she has an issue with this question. And her issue with this question is pants have to cover the butt so what we are actually looking at is dog chaps okay i mean this is you know these that that's really annoying sam you know we're trying to that's super annoying <laughs> the proper way for dogs to wear pants is a or b okay and my answer just, is b kelly has good that that she, she raises a good point it's just inconvenient for the purpose of what we're trying to achieve <laughs> at this point i am also going to go with b the hind two legs covering the butt a looks absolutely ridiculous uh, which is always better? Next question. The book or the movie? I, I, I mean, I have to say that in most scenarios, things go from novel to movie. Like every once in a while, somebody will make a movie and then some, you know, ghostwriter will be brought in to make a novel adaptation of that movie. And it's probably never all that good. So I'd say that, you know, in a in, in the classic scenario, the book is always better. Okay. I never read the book and I always read the movie. So I always read the movie. Yeah. I just watch the movie. There you go. You know, um, yeah. Uh, well, I read the credits at the end. 
Actually, Wyatt and I are having fun. I was telling you that Wyatt and I have started. I, we watched the uh, the original Star Wars trilogy, so oh, nice. four, four, five, six. Yeah. And I've been having a lot of fun. We gather together in front of the TV, and I read him the scroll off the top. Oh. And I get to do it in a big announcer voice. I don't think I've ever read the whole scroll. I've read like the first paragraph. Well, and this and that's is the fun. It. This is the fun part of reading. Uh, by the way, you have somebody advocating on your behalf here on Twitter. Uh, it's your better half, Kelly, who's saying we need to circle back and hear the speeding ticket story. So we'll do that. <laughs> she says. Uh, she says basically, I've just I I dismissed you and shame on me. So so we'll get back to that. So I, Sam, I'm going to go with you on this. I do think the book is is going to be better than the movie. I am only doing this. I'm voting this way out of peer pressure because I think people are going to think that I'm a rube if I don't. So we'll go. The book is better. Um, you should wash your jeans as much as you wash your other pants. No, that'll ruin them, which is true. Uh, yes, anything else would be super gross. I I think I wash my jeans like maybe once or twice a year. So yes. I'm definitely in the first category here. Nailed it, Sam. You know what you do with your jeans? If you wear your jeans at a campfire or something that's stinky, like a cigar bar mm-hmm. or something, you hang them outside. Yeah. You let them air out. You keep washing your jeans. They're, you're going to wreck them. Uh, in the shower, do you wash? Who does the second part? This is Chris Henderson from Y Station that wrote these things, not me, folks. In the shower, do you wash yourself by using the soap directly on you or soap on the washcloth then on you? I can't believe he had a chance to write loofah and he didn't take it. Okay, thank you. Because Kelly was talking about this the other day and I said, is loofah an option? Yeah. Okay, so let's say instead of just washcloth, it could be loofah, washcloth, One scrub brush. One of those spongy, scrubby any, things. Yeah. Any sort of, any device or de- any delivery device. Yeah. Do you put the soap directly on you or on a device and then on you or a delivery mechanism? I I've recently switched and here's here's what's going on here. All right. So like full just let's peel back the curtain here. Um, I used to use liquid body wash for years. We're all and picturing I found you in the shower. Yeah, right now, I know, so, that's yeah. fine. Um, enjoy it if you want. Um, <laughs> I used to use liquid body wash for years and um, would get one of those like foamy loofah things and 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 it was like honestly just to make a bottle of body wash go further because if you put it directly on you you're wasting a ton of it if you put it on you know something that you can suds up you use like a okay, teaspoon of okay. it so like that was always my rationale was just i can make this bottle last six months if i use something to wash with now over christmas this year as stocking stuffers i got a whole bunch of bars of really nice like locally made oh, soap yes and so now i'm like fully on the the local bar soap train now did you have to buy a soap dish uh we have like a wire rack in our shower okay, so, so yeah cool. we're good um yeah. i i use the soap directly on me so that's what i'm going to choose here in this tough real talk question of the week do you physically cringe every time you hear a recording of your speaking voice yes um <laughs> I don't. You busted me the other day listening to the podcast. You said, are you listening to yourself? I said, it's called an air check, Sam. (laughs) When you pass someone walking their dog down the street, do you acknowledge just the person? Do you greet the person and the dog or do you greet just the dog? I mean, I have to say I always greet the dog first. Yeah. Eventually, I'll get to the person. But greeting the dog is the entry into greeting the person. I would agree. If you greeted the dog and not the person, it might be a bit strange. We'll go greet the person and the dog. That's my answer anyway. Uh, do you turn down your car radio when you're looking for an address or a street sign? The answers are, holy shit, yeah, actually, I do. Or no, I can find an address at full volume. I, <laughs> I haven't really thought about this before. I think I actually do it. I, I don't sure know why turn the volume down it's, and I think that's it's a, a completely useless exercise but it's a hilarious question and it what's because yeah. you need to concentrate and I can't concentrate you know like you oh, play yeah, you for, play yeah. music in the mornings or you know and I'm yeah. always like Sam can you please turn it down I need to focus uh, which is like always four minutes before the show <laughs> I need to now I need to focus <laughs> in a movie theater which armrest is rightfully yours the left the right both or neither because I'm a pushover I, I, 
usually the right but like to me it's like whichever one my drink is on yeah but so which one would that be the right usually the right okay the I, right well because i'm right-handed i'm gonna I say put my drink there yeah, i'm gonna say yeah i'm gonna say the right i like to work with people i like to in, in a boy would i love to be in a crowded movie theater well because again. i mean like oftentimes like kelly and i will go to a movie and what we'll do is like you know if, if she sits on for example the left of me she'll probably put her drink and and in the in the left cup holder, yeah. And then we'll put like a bag of candy, you guys, and some napkins in the middle cup holder. But you found and I'll put synergy mine on my side. See, you because you guys are well, you guys are a well-oiled machine. Yeah. So there you go. On an airplane, if you're in the middle seat, do you get both armrests? Yes, it's your right, or no, you shouldn't have booked so late. I had never thought about this before this question came up, but I'm going to say yes, it's your right. You're stuck in the middle I seat. I agree. Those if, are yours. If you're stuck in the middle, you know, is cereal a soup? Obviously not. We're not even going to talk about that. That's a Ooh. ridiculous question. If you put one lasagna on top of another lasagna, do you have two lasagnas or one big lasagna? I think you. If you think about the way a lasagna is structured, it's got to be one big lasagna. You're I just totally adding agree. more. La- I've seen a hundred layer lasagna before, not in person. Yeah, but like, yeah, you, you can't know. you can't have yeah. two lasagnas if it's one on top. Of the, that's that by definition is one bigger lasagna. The best American pizza: a New York slice, a Chicago deep dish, or Detroit style pan pizza. I don't even know what Detroit style is. I like Detroit style. What is it? Can it's you- kind of in the middle. It, it's like, so Detroit style pizzas, they were, um, do you remember it, it, the short lived place called Holy Roller Pizza that was on the South Side? Okay. They served Detroit style pizzas. Detroit style pizza came out of being cooked in like parts trays from auto manufacturers. So typically they're square. Yes. They're not as deep as a Chicago deep crust, but okay. they still have pretty kind of like deep crust on the side of it. So right. they're, you know, they're, they're pan formed on the side. They're very so they're crispy a shallow on the edges. deep dish. I'd say so <laughs> they're, a sh- they're a shallow deep dish uh i'm gonna go new york slice because i think it's the classic sounds good um i mean you, you may differ when you answer the questions more on la- more on lasagna is lasagna a savory cake what kind of a dumb qu- no obviously not chris that's what kind of a question is that cilantro a fresh and wonderful addition to any dish or tastes like soap and burnt doll hair fresh and wonderful addition to any dish i think you're right yeah uh, people cilantro can be very divisive well, people subject. are, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm watching the chatterbox to see who brings this up first because there is a genetic disposition to tasting cilantro a certain way. I've heard this. Yeah. Uh, best brownie section, right in the middle or the crispy edge pieces. This becomes relevant if anybody drops us off, you know, brownies. Yeah. Just kidding. We won't eat anything you drop off. Don't do it. But <laughs> what, what would you say? The edges or the middle? I like the crispy edges. Okay, perfect. Because I'll take the middle. So okay. you and I would so be great. So we could share a brownie, no problem. Stuffed crust pizza, a delicious pizza innovation or proof that just because you can doesn't mean you should. I'm always for more innovation in my food. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm split. You know, for me, um, you know, I mean, you know, Carrie always gets ticked off at me because if the dogs are nearby, the dogs get the crust. And then she's like, and you wonder why the dogs beg while you eat. And, and but, oh, but you're the, a dog feeder. But hey? it, well, not from the table. But if the crusts are stuffed, then I might eat them. A yeah. hot dog is a sandwich. Of course, that makes perfect sense. Or what? No. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No. I think a hot dog qualifies as a sandwich. A hot dog is more of a taco than a sandwich. Uh, I'm going to go, no, you're going to have to circle back and you're going to have all to right. do it. Now, the greatest athlete of all time, and here's where this is this is going to be our road into reading an email from a, a viewer because Greg is actually a little bit ticked off at us about this. And, and Greg made a good point. So Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan, Serena Williams, Tom Brady, Tiger Woods, or Pele, the greatest athlete of all time. I'm going to go Gretzky. Let's we can make okay. this one quick. Okay, you're going to go Gretzky. I think I'm going to go Serena Williams. Oh, and and I'm going to say that because uh, you know in, in this case both Serena Williams 
and Tiger Woods excelled at an individual sport. Yeah. Whereas Gretzky and Jordan and Brady and Pelly all had teams behind them. So I think that there's a there's something to be said about, you know, quite possibly the greatest tennis player of all time. Yeah. Although, you know, Serena Williams only ever has to beat one other athlete, whereas Gretzky would take on all five. Gretzky has more assists than the second place NHL score in history that has true. points. Uh, I'm going to go Gretz. Um, however, let's get to Greg's email here and then we'll come back. Okay. We'll come back to our question of the week. Uh, Greg wrote in and to, to say, and first of all, Greg, thanks for taking the time to answer our question presented by Y Station. He says, I have a big issue with your athlete question. You may not know this, but unlike what was featured on your list, not all athletes play with balls or pucks. I honestly think that some of the uh, he says, I think of some of the best athletes on the planet are not given the coverage they deserve. And so here is a non-exhaustive list below for your reference. Alex Honnold, he says he's best known for free solo climbing half dome and free rider on El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, which I've seen. I've watched guys climb it. It's wild. He says he climbs routes without a rope that 95% of active climbers can't even climb and it would take some people days to climb. He also donates 30% of his income to his foundation, the Hanold Foundation. Tommy Caldwell. Uh, he's, uh, Greg says, you commented on a photo of him a couple weeks ago. Tommy is another outstanding climber, arguably one of the best ever. Uh, Greg, you can't put a guy that's arguably one of the best ever on this list, but I digressed. He says he's, he set the hardest climb on Don Wall in Yosemite, also holds the first descents for some of the hardest climbs in North America, and he's done all this while missing part of his pointer finger on his left hand. That's wild. Uh, Jimmy Chin, he says Alex and Tommy are great athletes, but the footage and the photos of them have been taken by Chin, which means the guy's also climbing these routes while carrying video cameras and photography gear. I would try this. He says he has the first American ski descent from the summit of Everest. What? Wait, and he skied <laughs> off the summit of Everest? I'm just like taking notes on Greg's. I'm just going to read it. I'm going to watch. I'm going to get into a YouTube rabbit hole tonight on no all of these. Kidding. Thanks to Greg. And finally, I love this. A local boy. He says, Will Gad uh, may not be one of the best athletes on the planet, but as an Albertan, he should qualify as the best Albertan athlete. He's a well-known ice climber. Uh, he, he's done a ton of routes that have never been repeated, including the first ascent of Niagara Falls. He's in the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, and he's a UN mountain hero. Uh, he goes on to name a whole bunch of others. He says, hell, even Lewis Hamilton, the best Formula One driver ever, didn't even make your list. If you broaden your criteria of an athlete, you may find there are other amazing humans that don't play ball or puck sports that perform feats that really push their respective sports and what the human body is capable of. That from Greg. Amazing email. He's totally right. I mean, there are, you know, I remember, you know, learning growing up about, um, you know, indigenous runners like in Calgary, Deerfoot Trail is named after a, a legendary runner. We didn't even talk about Jim Brown, who's not on the list. I mean, there are some great. And how do you define what makes an athlete great? Well, I mean, that's just it, right? It's like, you know, you, you put someone like Gretzky up there. But but, you know, what about somebody that's won multiple Olympic titles that that kind of is like how's like, Michael Phelps not on the list? Yeah, exactly. You know, or, yeah. or Billie Jean King or, you know, so I guess what I'm saying is that Chris Henderson, who put this together, deserves your criticism and you can find him on Twitter at Chris Henderson and I think it's a great idea for you to blow him up today and let him know what you think about these questions of the week uh, in all seriousness he does an amazing job for us what is most true for you back to our questions of the week I'm living to eat or I'm eating to live oh living to eat I mean this is this is a question about how Easy. much you value food yes I live to eat oh so do I 100% mac and cheese with ketchup the more red sauce the better or mac and cheese is perfect without I'm going to go without because I'm just not a big ketchup fan to begin with. Really? 
but it's yeah i i yeah oh i'm gonna more tell red you sauce, more I'm, I'm going and, and again this is where you know you and i can what we're proving here today sam is that people can come together and in disagreement and still coexist well, it's meet in the middle wednesday yeah it's meet in the middle wednesday that's right um yeah uh i'm gonna say the perfect craft dinner the perfect kd you start with a, a whole bunch of coarsely cracked pepper that's okay, where you start I'm with you there okay you then great uh, your your style of cheese. I would go with like perhaps a sharp cheddar. Uh, I would recommend um, you pop it in the microwave, even though you've just taken it off the pot because the, the cheese will start to melt, but not not equally. And it can coagulate and you could run into some issues. So I'm going to recommend, depending on your microwave, approximately 35 to 40 seconds just to get that cheese going. You pull it out and you hit it with the ketchup. You dig into it and off you go. It's I'll, I'll load my Katie up with hot sauce. Oh, sure. I love the hot sauce on it. I just so like, for you, it's, I don't feel like the need to put ketchup on everything. The, the hang up is the ketchup. Yeah, for you. exactly. I've got <laughs> if I can. Uh, my friend Victoria, who's probably watching right here, she makes KD with the sauce packet not fully mixed in. She likes it gritty. I don't know why. That sounds terrible. It is terrible. I'll tell you I've the most. Called her out on this over and over and is over again. Is she just lazy? And or now that's her... I, yeah, now I have a podcast where I can broadcast it from the roof. Yeah. Victoria, you are wrong. Wow, Victoria, better start a podcast to respond <laughs> to this. I'll tell you when times were tough in university, we didn't have milk in the fridge. I attempted to make KD subbing ranch in for milk. <laughs> It's terrible. That's a terrible idea. Uh, the word D-E-C-A-L is pronounced decal or decal. I say decal. Me too. Uh, but I think both, that's regional. And his, the final question, which I love, do you exist? Mm. Yes or no? Well, now I'm thinking about it. That's the point. Mm, I think I do. I'm going to say yes. Okay. What question do you think we should ask in the next round of contentious questions? I'm going to put yes. <laughs> And then we'll go on. Okay, that was a lot of fun. It means that um, we're, we're not getting to emails, which is, I mean, not great. Let me read a quick one from Trudy, just to prove that we do read the emails you send us at talk at ryanjesperson.com. She writes in and she says, uh, hi. She says, hi there. You know, I really like the idea of your show. The concept's great. And I listen to your show in the podcast format. Thank you, Trudy. She says, oftentimes I find your interviews very hard to listen to, though it seems like you interrupt your guests so often in order to voice your own opinions or thoughts that I find myself wondering, why do you even bother with guests? I tune in to listen to your interviews, but as often as not, I, I just turn them off partway through. If a question can be asked in 20 words, you will use 200. It's hard to listen to. Truthfully, though, I'm not sure how you've designed your show and I might be off base. Just saying that from Trudy. Trudy, thanks for listening. Thanks for the feedback. And maybe Trudy's right. We'll just cancel our guests. Let the guests know or we just, we're done because I have so many more things to say and share. I have so many <laughs> thoughts to share. You know, these shows are presented by the teams that support us each and every day, including one of our brand new partners. They're a real talk builder at McBain Camera. The team at McBain Camera has been serving Alberta's photography community since 1949. And they're still here. They're here across Alberta. Six convenient locations or at mcbaincamera.com to help you create beautiful images with exceptional gear like the Panasonic DC G9 camera. This is a camera built for speed so it can lock its focus in a fraction of a second. It's great if you're shooting the kids, shooting sporting activity. It can shoot 20 frames per second in AFC. Plus it has that five axis 
image stabilization. If you're a photographer, you know how big that is, especially using a long lens. Right now, when you order a Panasonic G9 at McBainCamera.com and enter the promo code REALTALK, one word, REALTALK at checkout, you'll receive a free spare battery with your order. Thanks to the team at McBain Camera. Also wanted to remind you, the team at Kubi Energy is Tesla certified. They only hire electricians and electrical apprentices to install your solar panels, your entire system, so you can have confidence that it's done right the first time. They do small, modest residential installations. They do huge commercial projects as well, like the Edmonton Convention Center. And right now they're available. If you check out kubienergy.ca, you can find their link to the website under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com to talk to you, to help you determine if solar's a good fit for your setup. Don't forget, Jake from Kubi Energy will be joining two other panelists when we take on our solar panel Friday at 11 Eastern at 9 o'clock Mountain. The team of the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you that five bucks can go a long way if it's date night at Dairy Queen. After 8 p.m. every single night, it's two for five dollar treat night, which means you can mix and match any two medium dipped cones or sundaes for five dollars at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Sam, let's take a quick look at what's making news this morning. Well, the Prime Minister says that a federal budget is coming soon. The official opposition conservatives, uh, as well as the NDP, have been criticizing what is proving to be the longest gap without a budget in Canadian history. Obviously, COVID factoring into this. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau asked at a news conference to respond to a report in the Globe and Mail that Ottawa had ruled out releasing a budget in March or early April. Uh, since 2015, for reference, when uh, Justin Trudeau was elected Prime Minister, the Liberals given the keys to that office. The Trudeau government's released three budgets in March, one in February. Next Friday marks two years since the government last tabled a budget. How about this? You've heard about Piers Morgan uh, on his way out from ITV after walking off set after a conflict with a fellow host talking about Meghan Markle, talking about, I, do you call him former Prince Harry now, I guess? Former Prince Harry? Harry and Meghan, everybody knows who we're talking about, their interview with Oprah. Well, it's been confirmed that Meghan Markle's representatives directly filed a complaint to ITV on behalf of the Duchess of Sussex following Piers Morgan's remarks about her mental health. ITV declined to comment. Uh, it could represent a tough moment for the broadcaster after it exclusively broadcast that CBS interview to 11.3 million people in the UK alone. And a more local story out of the Calgary Zoo. This is kind of interesting. Last week, the Calgary Zoo's Amur Tigers, Yuri and Sarma, participated in assisted reproductive therapy says the zoo's director of animal care and health jamie dorgan everything we do at the calgary zoo is with a focus to support wildlife conservation this is an interesting one isn't it female tigers are induced ovulators which which means that the act of mating had previously been the only way for the female to release an egg for fertilization but breakthroughs in reproductive science have shown that we, with the use of hormone therapy to induce ovulation and assisted reproductive techniques artificial insemination has a higher margin of success than it used to um when when asked about this the male tiger went all right (laughs) just had to sneak that in there didn't you well i just saw you know i mean you know 
If you take that away from wild animals that are in the zoo, what else do they have left? Mm, it's true. Right? Let them people mate. Don't, people don't get the good show. Let them mate. I would imagine that the uh, the wildlife biologists and the zookeepers probably know a little bit more about the tigers than I do. So I'll leave it there. In all seriousness, friends, we know that uh, issues of, of family law have quite likely impacted either you directly or somebody you know and love, whether we're talking about custody, whether we're talking about uh, divorce or separation agreements or other things that aren't even on our radar yet. This can be court proceedings, legal proceedings, that is the most stressful time of somebody's life. And so we're very grateful that these three panelists have agreed to join us for an hour. As mentioned, we're going to be checking our real talk inbox. That's talk at RyanJesperson.com for your questions as they come in live. Plus, we'll be monitoring our real talk RJ hashtag on Twitter if you'd rather ask your questions there. Joanne Stark has been a lawyer in Saskatchewan and B.C. for almost 30 years. She owns Stark Solutions Legal Coaching and Consulting and founded the Legal Coaches Association in Canada last year. Joanne, thanks so much for being here and welcome to the show. We may have a bit of a Sam, you want to work on that and make sure I'm going to introduce the other two. Just make sure they can hear me. Marcus Sixta is the founder of Crossroads Law based out of Vancouver uh, in Calgary. Marcus has a fascinating story before becoming a lawyer. He was a social worker. So he's seen this from a couple different angles and he's launching Coach My Case, which is a service that will help the growing number of Canadians going it alone in court because they can't afford a lawyer. Ian Holloway rounding out our panel today. Dean, uh, the dean of law at the University of Calgary has been for 10 years now. Ian's a regular columnist for Canadian Lawyer magazine. Uh, can all three of you hear me all right? Yes. Okay. I can we're, hear you fine. Okay, good. Well, we're, we're grateful that you're here. We'll, we'll make sure that all three of you are off mute and we'll get this ball rolling. Um, uh, Joanne, why, why don't we start with you? When we talk about family law, I mean, you've been in this business for for closing in on 30 years and you've you've no doubt seen it all is, is it a fair assessment for me to say that that legal proceedings in in family courts could quite likely be the most stressful time of, of any given person's life i'd have to agree with you there ryan um, not only did i represent family law clients as a full service lawyer but uh, over the years i also went through my own um, litigation as a family law client and um Yes, I would have to agree with you. It is an extremely stressful time in someone's life. And then add to that the additional cost, time and expense involved of um, hiring legal representation, which has become a real burden for people in Canada. Yeah, I want to talk about that access to the courts, access to resources. Marcus, you, you've obviously seen a lot as a social worker and, and then a lawyer. Uh, you're launching Coach My Case, which we want to get into. It's going to help Canadians that are going it alone in court because of financial reasons. Uh, what prompted you to make the move from social work into law? Marcus, I think we might be on mute. Uh, you want to just check real quick? We're good to go. I want to make sure we can hear you here. We good? Thank you. Okay, there you go. Well, I wanted to um, use the social work experience that I had to continue to advocate for people. Um, I had um, some family members of mine who had legal backgrounds, and so I was inspired to go into law. And then when I went into law, I decided to go into family law because I felt that that was the way that I could best use my social work experience uh, in the legal field. And um, so that's that's primarily why I made the jump from social work into law, it was so I continued to, to help represent people and advocate for people's needs. And that's what I've been doing in family law would you, with individuals. Would you say based on your, your anecdotal experience, like what you saw or what you continue to see that 
um, the average civilian might be surprised at how many people are in court without legal representation? I mean, is, is this a pretty common thing? Well, you know, before I got into law and when I was a social worker and before that, I guess I had a pretty naive view of how the justice system worked. And I just always assumed that if you were engaged in the justice system, that you would have some form of legal representation if you needed it. But that's simply not the case. Uh, what we know is that in many Canadian jurisdictions, upwards of 60% of people have to represent themselves in court because they don't have enough money to retain a lawyer to represent them on their file full time. And they also don't qualify for legal aid because legal aid budgets have been slashed and gutted over the last couple decades by governments across the country. So if you're making over $25,000, you're not gonna qualify for legal aid. And if your income is less than $70,000 a year, you're very likely not going to be able to afford a lawyer to represent you in your trial, leaving most Canadians uh, without a lawyer and having to represent themselves because that's their only option. Ian, uh, you're dean, faculty of law, University of Calgary. Is this something that's been on your radar for, for a number of years with, with regards to access, uh, maybe you know, to legal coaching, let alone legal representation, access to justice, I guess, is what we're talking about? Absolutely, Ryan. A2J, as it's uh, as it's commonly referred to, is probably, not probably, it's without question, the biggest crisis facing the Canadian legal system today. It's uh, the former Chief Justice of Canada, um, Beverly McLaughlin, has talked at length about it. Uh, every law school in this country is, uh, is concerned about it. Um, I'm just glad that we're able to uh, to work with people like Joanne and Marcus here and uh, and try to do things to uh, to help Albertans. You know, Ryan, I sometimes put it this way, that, you know, we, we often say that the rule of law is one of the things that makes Canada one of the most desirable countries in, in all the world in which to live. But the rule of law is predicated on a functioning court system. It's predicated on people, ordinary ordinary Canadians, ordinary Albertans being able to have access to the court system. And if it's structured in such a way that they can't afford it, and if they try to have access themselves, they stumble because it's so complicated and arcane, then we're kind of undercutting the whole basis of, uh, of what we say makes Canadian society special. I want to ask the three of you for your impression. Um, maybe, maybe essentially I'm asking you to review changes to Canada's Divorce Act that took effect just at the beginning of this month, just at the beginning of March. And, and from what I've read, my understanding is, and, and obviously the three of you will have a more robust understanding, that the changes place more emphasis on the needs of children uh, during a divorce and, and aim to minimize legal battles between parents over custody orders. Um, Joanne, would you say that that's an accurate assessment of changes to the act? Are you welcoming the changes? Is there anything that's concerning you? The uh, the Federal Divorce Act was really in need of um, modernization. And so what it has done is it has taken the terminology that traditionally is used, such as custody and access, uh, which more, more or less focused on the rights of the parents to have access to the children uh, and put it more the emphasis on the children and their rights. And the other thing that the Divorce Act does, which I think is, is uh, actually 
pretty significant, even though some of the provinces had already addressed this, was that it actually brings in the notion of domestic violence and what that does and the impact of that on the family. Before that, uh, judges and, and uh, lawyers were able to argue that that was not relevant. And so when you, people were facing those types of situations in a divorce trial, they basically were told not to speak about it. Um, their voices were not heard. And so the impact of domestic violence on a household, on the children, uh, were not necessarily being taken into consideration during divorces. So. I think it's a really positive move forward. Marcus, have we have we done it? I mean, it, when it when it comes, you know, people say think of the children and we oftentimes think of who, who's going to be harmed the most through these these bitter disputes. And people will obviously say it's always the kids. Do you think that these changes will turn that tide? Well, I think that they do go in the right direction. Um I don't think that they're going to completely turn the tide on that. I think that children are always going to be caught in the middle when these issues go before the courts. But what these changes also include are new duties on the parents themselves, which include the duty to try and um, mediate or resolve their dispute outside of court. Um, so that is something that judges are now going to have to be focusing on and asking people if they've done that, if they've tried mediation. And so I think that that's a very positive step because obviously if you can keep something out of court, you can reduce the acrimony and then you can ensure that the family is going to be on good terms <laughs> for the long term. I tell clients all the time that you can't just look at it on the short term basis in terms of this battle that you're engaged in with this with this other person, you need to look long term. This is the person that you're going to be sharing your kids with for decades. You're hopefully going to be going to graduations and weddings and celebrating grandchildren together. So you need to have a good relationship because it doesn't just end when the children are 18. Ian, do you think that I mean this I, I almost hesitate to ask you this question because I recognize that every single scenario is different. Every single relationship is different. There's going to be complicating or contributing factors to every single case here. But do you think that that when it comes to to, you know, divorce and custody hearings and these types of things, are there changes that could have been implemented quite some time ago that were not implemented because of I mean, whether it's existing understandings of how proceedings need to work? Um, do we need to sort of I hate saying think outside the box, but but when, when it comes to transforming our judicial system, we look at these changes to the Divorce Act and we'll say, OK, that may be a start. OK, that's a step in the right direction. Do you think we could go even further and is there something holding that back we may have just lost ian sam yeah let's yes I think oh here he is okay let's work on getting ian back why don't i ask joanne the same question what do you think um <laughs> you caught me off guard there Ryan. i was waiting for ian's inspired answer there but uh yeah, I think that there's there's a, a lot of movement that needs to continue to happen. I think that um, there have been there has been a need to address some of these issues for a very long time, and it has it has been something that the legal profession has been fighting for and and wanting these changes. Keeping in mind, of course, that some of these issues are also addressed with through provincial legislation as well. So we've seen some changes to provincial legislation, including in Alberta and BC over time that has addressed some of these issues. But to see the federal legislation finally move forward is obviously a very positive thing. Okay, Ian, we wanna, wanna try again here and our apologies. Uh, can you hear me okay? 
Looks like we might be having a we, Sam. We might have we might have to drop that just to make the executive call with with our sincere apologies. But it's just I don't know what to do about that. It, it hey, it means more talk time for for Joanne and Marcus. With our apologies sincerely to Ian Holloway, we just don't have the connection there that we're going to need. Uh, Marcus, when, when we talk about this, why don't why don't I mean do we have to evaluate everything in the lens? of COVID-19. I mean, when, when it comes to, you know, the one thing that I've heard about this pandemic is that it's going to lead to major backlogs in the court system. Does that include family courts? And have you already been seeing the impact of this pandemic? Well, absolutely. Um, the uh, COVID-19 shut down the court system for months in 2020. And the court system has yet to fully recover from that. There is a massive backlog of cases in the court system right now. And so, whereas you had delays in terms of getting things into court and, and scheduling trials before, those delays have now been amplified because of that shutdown that occurred in 2020. Now, some of these impacts obviously are negative, but there have been some interesting positive benefits of COVID-19 on the court system. And actually the Canadian Bar Association did a very interesting report um, just recently in February called No Turning Back, in which they outlined some of these positive changes, including that it forced the courts to start to adapt new technology, which has actually improved accessibility of the court system. For example, um, now in Alberta, you can file things electronically Whereas before you had to line up and in, 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 in front of a counter with dozens of other people and wait your turn with your papers. Now you can just file everything electronically. So it's a lot easier that way. You can sign your documents on Zoom with your lawyer. You can commission documents on Zoom. Um, and you can even attend hearings by Zoom. I mean, I even attended a trial recently on Zoom with all the witnesses and everybody there on the Zoom call. Um, and so, of course, that made it a lot more accessible for many people. And this includes people in rural communities who may have a hard time getting to court or even a hard time going to their lawyer's office. Joanna, are you seeing evidence uh, anecdotally or otherwise that this pandemic is is increasing uh, issues uh, among families? I know there's been some some serious concern around rates of domestic violence uh, increasing. And, and some people have speculated uh, somewhat glibly, I would say that divorce rates will, are likely to increase as a result of this pandemic. Are you seeing that? Well, what I'm hearing is that the the calls for help to domestic violence lines have certainly increased during the pandemic. And that's really not a surprise when people are forced to isolate in a home and uh, tensions start to rise. And, and we've all felt it. We've all we've all felt pretty uh, cooped up. Uh, being in our homes, even with our loved ones. Um, but what that ends up doing is it raises the level of tension in a home, especially a busy household with lots of people living in it. Um, and what ends up happening is, is that increases the risk of domestic violence happening. And without being able to, to reach out and, and get to the people you need to for support, um, that puts uh, a lot of people in significant risk. So, so one of the things we are seeing because of the pandemic that's a negative would be that as well as issues in exchanging children back and forth between households and the risk of, uh, of possibly transmitting COVID-19. And so we've also seen cases being heard and, and applications uh, being presented to courts about those issues. So those are new issues that have come up as a result of the pandemic that need to be addressed. We hear a lot from rural Canadians. Um, we got Ian back. 
Do we have Ian back? Can we're, you hear we're us? We're trying on it. He's, okay. uh, he's, he's very frozen right now. Okay, well, I'm going to ask him, you yeah. live on the show. Can we keep him? Let's let's not do it live on the show. So okay, let's, sounds good. Yep. <laughs> so let's get yeah, him off the, off the screen. And let's just, we might have to cut our losses on this one, Sam, because I got to keep this thing moving here. We hear from a lot of rural Canadians that are talking to us about how underserved they are in so many different capacities, whether we're talking about broadband internet, whether we're talking about healthcare, access to family physicians. What about legal resources, Marcus? Is this a thing? Well, absolutely. I mean, your choice of lawyers is going to be a lot more limited in a rural community. You also have a problem where if you do select a lawyer, there may be conflicts um, because of the close relationships in a smaller community, um, or there just may not be enough lawyers to prevent conflicts of interest between um, you know you and the other side on a file and that lawyer you're dealing with. And so many people will have to reach out to other communities. And that's one of the reasons why at Coach My Case, we're offering our services 100% remotely so that we can um, help people anywhere in British Columbia or Alberta. Um, so if you're in a rural community and you're in a position where you need to represent yourself, um, you can contact us and our legal professionals can help you in the background by providing you advice and helping you draft documents and edit documents so that you can represent, represent yourself better and with more confidence if that's what you need to do. So can you can you take us through this and explain how it works? So people I mean, people are I'm, I'm assuming are still paying for the service to a certain degree, right, Marcus? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. This is a it's an alternative legal service. Um, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to address this massive gap in legal services. The traditional um, ways of providing legal services obviously are not working for many, many people who have to represent themselves. And primarily, they're not working because people just cannot afford it. And so they have to go to the court on their own with no help at all. So we're offering people who are representing themselves in court with assistance in the background. So we provide paralegals and lawyers to help people by ghostwriting their letters, their settlement offers, by helping edit documents if that's what they need, by drafting documents if that's what they need by providing advice to people if that's what they need. It's all about what that client needs when they need it. It's a very client-centered approach. The client gets to select the service that they want when they want it. They're in control of their file. If they only wanna have one meeting, that's fine. If they wanna have a six hour session before a trial to get information on how to run a trial, how to address, how to present the uh, information to the court, what research they need, they can get that as well. And so this way, the client gets to control if and when they use our services and how much they spend because they don't need to provide an expensive retainer up front. They just pay as they go. So, Joanne, I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but, you know, we've all seen TV in the movies where, you know, someone's read their rights and, and I acknowledge criminal courts different than family court and all that kind of stuff. But you're the expert. So I'm asking you, you know, we see so if you cannot afford counsel or if you cannot afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you. Does that not apply to family law? Is this a silly question? Do people not have access to that sort of, I mean, we hear about legal aid. None of this applies. Not, not necessarily. I mean, it really depends on the province. So every province has a legal aid program, but the parameters of funding to those legal aid programs is going to differ from province to province. So you may have in, in certain jurisdictions where there is limited to no representation for family law matters, or it might be limited to one or two specific issues. So, so what ends up happening is if, you're, if your rights are going to be deprived to the extent that you're going to be put in jail or, or held against your will, then 
yes, legal aid services are available. And that's where you hear that phrase that you were referring to. But when it comes to family law matters, a lot of people are really just left on their own. And, and because they're having to self-represent because of financial reasons, uh, what ends up happening is they, they're running around looking for solutions. And so I get calls all the time from people across Canada saying, where can I go to get someone just to help me through this, to coach me through this one issue or this one problem or this one court application? And, and they can't go to legal aid because they don't qualify or their issue is outside the scope of the legal aid services that are offered in their province. And so that's what we're trying to do here is we're trying to create a new and innovative way to provide some limited legal services that are affordable and that empower the clients. So that's what it's all about. I wanted to read the two of you, not the entire statement, but a portion of the statement that was released yesterday by Del Graff. He's Alberta's uh, child and youth advocate. Um, people can read it themselves at ocya.alberta.ca, the, the uh, Office of the Child and Youth Advocate of Alberta. Um, says they've observed a concerning trend regarding the well-being of children whose families are involved in high-conflict custody disputes. Over the last five years, the office says it's received over a 1,000 phone calls related to this issue with a 13% increase in inquiries in 2019 into 2020. They say a number of these requests came directly from young people asking for help navigating custody and access matters because their needs were not being met. Now, the statement goes on. It's an important but troubling read. Um, Marcus, how do we need to address this as a society? You have young people themselves directly reaching out to an advocacy office because they're concerned about not just their own well-being, but the well-being of their family. Well, quite often this is the biggest issue, right, is that kids are simply forgotten in this whole process um, in family in family court. Um, but there are things that we do now to um, have the voice of children heard in court. In Alberta, we have different types of assessments, uh, voice of the child assessment, for example, where you can have a psychologist who will meet with the child and then present uh, information from the child to the court. You can even have lawyers appointed for children in these types of matters so that the children's interests are presented in court as well. So there are some things that are currently being done. Um, I mean, Canada, we've signed international conventions, in fact, to um, on this specific issue to ensure that children's needs and voices are, are heard in court. And so I think that we are doing some things to ensure that that's happening, but certainly um, more can be done. Um, but of course, if children are in crisis um, in these family situations, um, then, you know, we need to address it um, on that level as well. And there are hotlines, crisis hotlines available um, for children to call if, if they are going through crisis um, uh, because their parents are, are splitting up. And Marcus, I know that's important. Um, and I want to ask you both this, you know, and, and it's great that, you know, we have these crisis hotlines and that the kids help phone is there and that there are these resources, but these are kids, Right. And, and, I, and I don't mean to have sort of a Pollyanna view of how life should be, but these are young people that I would hope would not have to be reaching out to the advocate to be tracking down resources on how they can help them. So, I mean, I, I realize I'm somewhat naive in this or that I'm indicating and I'm probably showing signs that that in my own personal life, I've experienced some privilege or this hasn't really been a reality for me. But Joanne, you know where I'm coming from? Like, it's pretty tragic to me. I guess maybe I'm just stating the obvious that young people have to find ways to advocate for themselves here in many circumstances. 
Well, it is, it's quite a frightening prospect. I mean, again, I applaud the, these children for coming forward and expressing their concerns. And, and there's no doubt that there's a, a considerable struggle to the family when uh, a, a legal action can be prolonged for even up to a decade or even longer from some of the stories that I've heard. Um, one of the things that I, that I do is I talk a lot to other family law lawyers, and there are family law lawyers out there that will specifically deal with children's rights and they generally will represent children uh, and speak on their behalf, which is something that I think is a really important and necessary service. It would it would be great to see more funding go into that process so that children really have um, somebody who can explain their legal rights to them, but also be their voice in legal matters. So when there is a family family litigation going on, that their that their rights are are not being ignored, that they are being heard. I've got an interesting uh, message. I want to put this one in front of you first, Joanne. Uh, uh, an email here from Danny who says, I'd be curious in your panelists estimation if there is gender equity in Canada's family courts. He says, we've just recognized International Women's Day and we've had conversations around and have discussed where inequity exists. He says, based on my personal experience, men don't get a fair shake in family court. Joanne, what do you think? Well, I, I started practicing family law in the 1990s, um, so things were a bit different back then. That's, that's over 25 years ago. Um, and certainly things have changed and evolved over time. I, I, would, I would disagree with, with what I see in court. I don't believe that, um, that men necessarily get a, a, a rough time of it in court. Um, quite often what you'll hear is people that are asked to pay for the support of their children. Um, while at the same time having to cut back in the amount of time that they spend with their children, which is the case when a family divides up, um, that that creates a lot of anger and resentment. And so um, the perception might be, well, something's been taken away from me, so therefore it must be a gender issue. But the reality is, is when a family splits up, the finances are cut substantially for both parties. The time that you spend with your children is cut for both parties. And so it, it, there is no um, equal way to deal with that because it is a division of a family. And so to me, in my mind, the way that the laws are written and the way that they're applied by the courts, it, there isn't uh, uh, an inequality in that respect. But I turn over to you, Marcus. I don't know if you have a different opinion on that. Um, no, I mean, I, I largely would agree with what Joanna is saying. I think that historically, yes, men and women were treated differently in the court system. I mean, our laws in Canada have evolved a great deal over the last a number of decades. We now have no-fault divorce. Um, we no longer have the tender years doctrine where uh, children would just automatically end up in the care of the mother. More and more courts are now um, doing, uh, you know, essentially uh, indicating that shared parenting is the way to go. And, and we see that more often um, now where children are um, uh, shared between the parents on a week off, week off basis, week on, week off basis, for example. So, um, I think that that has changed quite a bit. So I don't see that there's a massive um, uh, difference there. I, what I would say, though, as well in response to that, is that um, sometimes where you do see a big difference in terms of access to justice is on this financial side. And um, quite often uh, it's the um, uh, it's the male in the relationship who has the history of having a higher income, and so it may be more easy for them to pay for a lawyer um, we do have, um, you know, 
in my experience, I see a, a lot of women who are representing themselves in court. So there, there could be a little bit more of a disparity there. Um, I'm not sure if that's even borne out though in the research and the stats uh, that we have available. So I would say that generally uh, men and women in court um, are treated the same. You may have an old judge who's been in there for a long, long time, you know, who, who uh, looks at a father and just automatically says, well, no, kids should be with mom. Uh, I think that that does happen too, unfortunately. Can you, I, I have no idea. I mean, I suppose the name is somewhat self-explanatory, but no fault divorce. Um, I'm actually not familiar with, with what that is. Can, can you lay it out for those of us that have no idea? Sure. Well, in our system, um, if you have been separated for a year, you can get a divorce. That's it. That's all you need. Um, we no longer look at um, the conduct of the parties uh, during the relationship or during separation in order to determine if they can get a divorce. You know, there's some countries um, around the world where that's not the case. They still have fault-based uh, divorce systems. So you have different things like if somebody has uh, abandoned the, the matrimonial consortium, if uh, someone uh, hasn't provided well enough for their spouse, that can be a grounds for divorce. Um, you know, you have all these other things. In Canada, we still have um, divorce that can be based on adultery or cruelty. So those are, um, I, I guess, fault-based um, divorce uh, grounds. But what we have is we have most people, you know, probably over 99% of divorce cases they're just going by way of being separate and apart for a year. You're not looking at any of the conduct of the parties. Okay. Not a lawyer. Um, it sounds to me to be from like 1300s England that you have to have, I mean, you, you can't, and again, I'm naive on this. This is why we bring experts on the show. We're grateful to have you here. You can't just not want to be married anymore. You have to come up with a reason. There had to be a reason. Why do you have to have a reason? Why do you have to be separated for a year? Why can't you why can't you why can't you just file for divorce and be divorced? I mean, we can do everything else we want, right? Why can't we do that? What am I missing? Yeah, well, I, I think that the and I think that the year separation period is just there to act as sort of a cooling off period. I mean, we also have an obligation in our divorce act um, as lawyers um, to uh, inform people that there are services available to help them reconcile their relationship. Um, so, you know, to give them uh, th uh, pause and to think about that, whether or not they can reconcile. Um, so I think that that's just set up as a cooling off period, that year of separation before you can actually apply to get your divorce finalized. But that being said, I mean, you what the, the normal process that happens if people are engaged in the family law system is that they separate and then they can bring applications. They can go to court for many different things like parenting time and child support and spousal support and the rest of it. And then after that year, after separation, then they can start filing the actual divorce document where they can get the paper that says you are now divorced. So it doesn't it's not like it prevents someone from actually um, going to court and getting services in court. But Joanne, is this kind of imposing some sort of a, I mean, treating the court like a parent or, or treating, for that matter, legislators like parents, like maybe everybody needs to take a year to cool off. You're like, I don't need a year to know that I do not want to be tied to this person anymore. And I'm not going to feel any differently in a year than I feel right now. It just seems strange to me. Isn't it a little weird? 
Well, I, I think that one of the points, though, is that you can continue to go on with your life the way you choose to. So if you want to enter into a relationship, you can. If you want to move in with somebody else, you can do that. The only thing you really can't do until you get your divorce is remarry somebody. So that one year period is simply a period of time where, you know, because of technical re- reasons, you cannot get remarried. And so Again, Les Marcus has said that that cooling off period is quite often a period of time where many couples actually, you know, go into mediation, go into counseling and reconcile. And so had they gone out and gotten immediate divorce, it would have been then going back through and unwinding all of that and and going through um, getting remarried, I guess, again. So it doesn't really prevent you from doing what you want to do and choosing the way you want to live your life. You can move out, you can move away, you can have a relationship it just it's simply a matter of until that marriage has been concluded and the divorce is finalized, you can't get remarried. I've got a uh, an email here from a viewer that says, Ryan, you can call me Crystal. She doesn't want her real name used for obvious reasons. She says, I'm so grateful uh, to have these panelists here this morning. She says, I'm preparing uh, to ask my husband for a divorce. She says, I'm learning as much as I can as possible right now. I'm doing my best to put some money aside under the radar. Are there any other tips in preparing for divorce that your panelists might be able to pass along that from we'll call her Crystal? Well, I would suggest um, getting some legal advice and getting it early on. Um, Just understanding what the processes are is very important. Um, Understanding what your rights are, what your rights to property are, what your rights to support are, and also understanding the different things that um, can be um, set up for the children too, the different types of parenting schedules, um, and getting a very early understanding of um, how really the best interest of the children is the only thing the court is going to look at when it comes to determining what parenting schedule is going to be in place. Uh, So I think that that's all uh, very important information to have uh, early on in that process where you're, you're considering it because, you know, after hearing all of that, and this has happened to me uh, numerous times where I'll have someone come in and they're thinking about getting a divorce. And then when I break it down for them on exactly how this is going to shake out, financially with the children and everything, they think, you know what? This sounds like it's too much. I'm going to go maybe reconsider things, try and work things out, maybe get some counseling, maybe get me, you know, ask my partner if they want to do couples therapy and things like that. Um, because yeah, the, the process of getting a divorce uh, is fairly onerous and difficult. And uh, you know, there, there can be some serious negative financial consequences there. Joanne, do you have I mean, aside from from, you know, seeking legal counsel, do you typically if you have a client, if somebody's in your office or, you know, consulting with you for the first time, do you typically say to them, this is the first thing you need to do? Or here's one or two of the first things you need to do. One of the things that I always recommend is to to gather in your documents. And so I I might suggest them they gather in uh, income tax returns, bank statements, um, mortgage documents and any kind of debt, credit card statements and things like that. Um, sometimes what happens is once you've announced that your decision to move on and to separate, those documents can get lost in the shuffle or or grabbed by the other party and it makes it much more difficult and it can cause more delays. The other thing that I often recommend to clients too is is to start building a support system around themselves, whether that be family, friends, uh, religious groups, whatever social connections they have. I think that it's really important for people to be um, practicing self-care and making sure that they have that support system in place because as Marcus indicated, it can be a long and onerous journey. 
And, and so you need to, if you're going to be representing yourself in court, especially, you need to make sure that you have that foundation in place and that you maintain those connections. There's some great comments going on um, on our, our live chat here on YouTube with the viewers that are tuned in. Steven says, I could not disagree more regarding gender parity for divorce proceedings in courts. There are many stories out there of the man getting just hammered by the judge. He says, Marcus was right, though. There's not parity on the issue of money and payments. Unfortunately, the bad stories and bad guys outpace the good guys out there. Would you agree? The, the bad stories and yeah, sorry, the bad, the, the the bad, bad stories guys. and the bad guys outpace the good guys. He says there's not parity on the issues of money and payments. Is that do you think that's because there's a, a preconceived notion or a misnomer about? I mean, generally speaking, I guess I'm circling back and in a way asking the same question, but I'm just intrigued by what Stephen says. He says there are many stories out there of the man getting just hammered by the judge. Well, you know, I think that um, there's I definitely I've I've dealt with you know, thousands of people going through uh, divorces, right? And uh, going through the system. So I, I think that y- you can take a case in isolation and and if it's your case, especially, that's, that's the case you know. But from my experience, I can tell you, I've seen lots of women get hammered in court. I've seen lots of men get hammered in court. I've seen people who are self-represented, um, who are men and women, get yelled at by judges, get held in contempt, um, have tons of problems on their files. Um, like I said earlier, I think that there's a history here where definitely um, the on the parenting side, the court system and our laws favored uh, women getting more time with the kids. But I do think that that has now changed. Um, I think all of the new judges in our courts are aware of that change. Um, I think that sometimes you may have uh, judges who have um, been there for a long time. You may still have some of these notions. Um, but I, I think that that's really, you know, it's, it's changing and it has changed quite a bit. So I don't think it's, um, uh, a real, you know, massive difference, uh, between how men and women are treated, uh, in our family court system. Let me read a few more comments of what our viewers are saying live here. This interview we're, we're talking to, if you're just tuning in, Joanne Stark uh, of Stark Solutions, legal coaching and consulting. Um, by the way, your background, we have to recognize, I don't know where you are right now, if that's your home or your office, but that's absolutely stunning. Where are we? Not Marcus, Joanne, I'm talking. No, no offense, Marcus. Hit, hit the wrong button. No it's offense, fine. Marcus. Joanne, is this your office? That's beautiful. This is this is my work office downtown Vancouver. I would just sit and stare out that window all day long. Marcus Sixta also joining us. And Marcus, I should say beautiful artwork behind you, my man. I don't I I, I don't want you to feel like I don't recognize that. Marcus is the founder of Crossroads Law. He practices out of Vancouver and Calgary as well. Shalane says, you know, on Facebook groups, I've seen moms asking other moms for legal advice regarding child custody, child support payments because they can't afford real legal advice, which is so unfortunate. Um, Colette, this is an interesting point from Colette. And, and you know, there's kind of a, you know, a Rodney King kind of a feel to it. She says if people were just kind and reasonable to each other, they wouldn't need lawyers help as much and it would be much better for kids. And and sure, but there's oftentimes a lot of contentious issues at play. Right. I mean, do, do you think that we could see more amicable resolutions outside of a courtroom is that something that that people could push for i mean it'd probably be bad for business if you're in the business of family law joanne but what do you think 
I don't think it would be bad for business. There's more than enough family law work yeah. going around. There's more family law clients than there are lawyers to deal with all the issues. So if, if more matters got resolved outside of the courtroom, I'm sure Marcus would agree with me. We would all we would all feel that's a better situation. Um, there are mediation services and arbitration services for people who are interested in going that route. Unfortunately, the reality is, and I've dealt with this personally, is that if you've got someone on the other side of a relationship that says, I will never sign a document and I will never sign an agreement ever, and they mean it, then they have the ability to basically manipulate the court system and drag it on for up to a decade or more. And that's just the reality is, is you have to have both people wanting to come to the table. Both people have to be in agreement that they're going to sign an agreement that's that's reasonably fair. Um, but if you've got one party that says there is no way I am ever signing anything ever, well, then there is only one option, and that's the court and the court route. So unfortunately, that is the reality for a percentage of these cases. And, and so that's why we have the courts there making decisions for these people. Marcus, what do you think? Is it, I mean, is it is it relatively rare uh, to see people reach an amicable solution outside of a court? I mean, could, could I, it might be tough for you to estimate what percentage. I mean, that's how are you going to base those parameters? But what do you think? Well, no, I don't think it's rare at all. I think the majority of cases actually get resolved outside of court. Hmm. Um, I think the majority of people probably resolve their issues without the help of lawyers at all. They just sit down at the kitchen table and they hash it out um, and they can come up with an arrangement and uh, and it works quite well. And then I know from my own experience that most of the cases that I have get resolved without it going to trial. I think in civil courts, uh, which would that's where family law is, it's in the civil court system, you have over 90% of cases get resolved before they go to trial. And so many cases are resolved through just people working it out on their own, or if they need to engage a lawyer, they work it out through just pure negotiation with the other side, coming up with a settlement through their lawyers. If that doesn't work, you can retain somebody to act as a third party to facilitate the process of how to resolve that issue. That's a mediation process. Um, you can also engage in what's called uh, collaborative divorce, which is something that's available um, in, right across the country. It's becoming way more popular. Um, that's a process where each person retains their own collaborative divorce lawyer, and then they work together as a team to come up with a solution that is not about one party winning, it's about the family winning. And if either party uh, wants to go to court during this process, they, everybody has to fire their lawyer and start from scratch. Uh, so that's a way of keeping them in that process. And we see a lot of good results with collaborative uh, divorce. Here's it's interesting. Yeah. No, go ahead, Marcus. I was going to say it's it's interesting when you think about um, the effect of COVID on some of these alternative dispute resolution processes, because when COVID hit, as I mentioned, the court system was just completely shut down for months. And as a result, a lot of people, including lawyers, were forced into alternative dispute resolution processes like mediation, like collaborative divorce, like arbitration, things outside of court. And, um, and I think a lot of people um, found that that was a, a good process to, to undertake. And actually that was recognized in that Canadian Bar Association report that came out that they're looking at um, putting together a task force to look into how and what areas of law could be amenable to online dispute resolution processes. 
um, as a way of addressing some of these issues that we saw uh, from COVID. Online dispute resolution being having dispute resolution like mediation, but totally on Zoom like we're doing today. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a really fascinating trend. That's an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Um, CJ's watching and, and she hits me up on Twitter. She says, I'm really loving this chat on family law. She says, can we please talk about when one parent when one parent alienates the kids from the other, um, but we're still expected to send the majority of our income to the children that refuse to talk to them on the phone. There is gender disparity. That's an interesting one from CJ. Do either of you want to take that on? Well, I mean, I, I would say that alienation cases go both ways as well. I mean, I don't think that there's anything that would suggest any research that would suggest that women are more inclined to alienate children or men are more inclined to alienate children. Um, alienation of children is really a tragic. It's one of the most tragic things you'll see in a family law case. Is it common, Marcus? Um, it's not. It's. I wouldn't say it's very common, um, but it does happen. And when it happens, it is really it's really destructive. It's, it's destructive to the relationships, obviously, between the children and, and especially the, the person that's been alienated um, for, for the long term. Um, it can have really long term consequences. And I've had a number of cases where alienation has been involved. They're very difficult to deal with. You have to get in. Usually you have to get a, a psychologist in to assess the situation, assess the needs of the kids, assess whether or not this is true alienation or whether the kids are themselves making a choice to um, avoid that other that that parent because of something that that parent has done. Um, and you know, with alienation, the courts are in a real difficult position on what to do with it. Quite often, um, they struggle because there's some research that would indicate that just putting the kids that have been alienated back into the care of that parent that they've been alienated from is going to damage them. And so you have to slowly integrate the children back into that parent's life and that parent back into those children's life with the help of counselors um, that, that can help show and teach the kids that this relationship is good and it's healthy and it's okay. Um, but quite frankly, uh, a lot of these uh, kids, they don't repair the relationship. Uh, and Or I should say the relationship doesn't get repaired until the kids are, you know, in their 20s, they're adults, and they can look back and say, wow, you know, that was really weird, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that whole thing with, you know, that parent telling me you were the worst person in the world you know, I look back on it now and uh, that, that was all wrong. And I have had, had cases where clients have come back um, after the kids have been alienated and they've said, you know, my kids are in their 20s now and now we have a great relationship. So Kim makes an, an astute observation on that. I think she said, you know, she says the fear of the process, the cost of divorce, which I guess you could interpret in many different ways, uh, seems to be a deterrent for many women and men who are unhappy uh, Lisa says it took me more than a year to actually be brave enough to leave, uh, but I do understand the process. How about this from Julie? Here's a good news story. She says, I worked with an organization online that helped me prepare the documents. Marcus, it sounds maybe like something you're doing. Um, and I self filed. She says it cost me 400 bucks from start to finish. We had an amicable split. We were in agreement before the papers were done. Um how about this from Jason? I'm not sure I agree with Jason here, but that's fine. Uh, says, in my humble opinion, divorce shouldn't be easy. Jason says leaving a marriage is a lifelong decision with massive consequences for all involved. Joanne, what do you think? 
Well, it's an interesting comment. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people believe this. And and when we were talking about the alienation thing earlier, I, it, it just, I keep, I keep going back in my mind to the women that I've, I've, I've talked to and work with in domestic abuse um, support groups. And, and a lot of times it's a cultural thing. You know, the women are the ones that have the children taken away from them. And it's a cultural religious thing where they come from a background where um, it's very patriarchal and it's the, it's the man and his family that take the children away from the mother. And it's a common occurrence. And so, you know, these are very real um, situations and, and really big concerns for people that are facing that. So should it be easy or should it be, should it be difficult? Well, I mean, it's very easy to get married. It takes literally a bit of paperwork, you know, and, and you can be married in a matter of days. Um, should it be so difficult that it takes a decade to, to sever the relationships of the children and, and the two adults can heal? No, it shouldn't take that long. So I think what we need to do is try to find a way to, to start to transform that system so that it isn't easy, but at the same time, it isn't going to be so drawn out that it damages all the people involved in it. Yeah, there's kind of this, I mean, this is really, we could talk about this for 10 hours. There's the idea of a, you know, a social safety net, like like a societal safety net that we expect, where we expect that people need to be protected, uh, not left in the lurch, so to speak. And then there's also just the reality of, of us as as uh, as animals <laughs> or animals. And, uh, you know, I mean, and, and you know, sometimes people are going to up and leave. Some people are going to let you down. People are going to disappoint you. People are going to hurt you. That's a reality. And and I'm not saying that you know, I mean, I guess what we're saying, you know, by arguing that divorce should be easy or divorce should not be easy, rather. And again, I'm oversimplifying. Um, I'm admitting that out of the gates um, and I'm probably ignoring a lot of factors that Jason might be considering in making the comment. But in arguing that divorce should not be easy, you're essentially arguing in a way that we should constrain people or keep people in relationships they don't want to be in that they're not respecting, that they're not contributing to, uh, that they're not investing in, and ultimately you have to ask, why? Right, Marcus? I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I don't know. I don't, I don't understand about making something difficult for people to deter them from doing it. I'm not talking about drunk driving or uh, you know credit card fraud. We're talking about seeking a divorce. Right, right. Well, I think that you need to strike that balance. And I think that that's what the Divorce Act in, you know, making sure that there's that year or period of between separation and divorce, that's what they're attempting to do there. They're attempting to have that period of time for people to reconsider and think about their options and think about whether or not this is what they really want. That's why we have the duty in the Divorce Act where lawyers have to inform people that there are ways of resolving their, um, their disputes um, through counseling and seeing if they can reconcile. At the same time, though, you don't want to prevent people from getting out of terrible relationships. I mean, we obviously know that there's, um, you know, and we can see from what's happened during COVID, that family violence is a real concern. That's something that's in the Divorce Act now. It's clearly outlined in there. Uh, It's a consideration when you're talking about what's in the best interests of children and what parenting arrangement would be best for them. And you don't want to keep people, you can't keep people in these types of situations. You have to give them an out. So, um, you have to strike the balance there. Got an interesting comment here from Larry, and I respect Larry leaving the comment. He says getting married must not be as casual of an action as changing your underwear. He says our society has lost the understanding of commitment. Um, 
which you know that, that's larry's opinion i you know i, I feel too though like commitment is going to mean different things to different people like there's this great comment from terry i want to put in front of both of you this is this is a really interesting angle that she takes and she qualifies it she says listen as somebody that's been married for 31 years right she goes on to say that uh um Oh, geez. And now I've just lost the comment as soon as I start reading it. But she basically says, I, she says, I think traditional marriage and she's been married for more than 30 years. OK, she says, I think traditional marriage is overrated. She says, I'm happy to see more polyamorous relationships happening. And it'll be interesting. I can tell Joanne's already excited to answer this. She says it'll be interesting to see how the laws develop around the changes. Are you seeing more of that? Are you seeing more open marriages, more polyamorous relationships? Are the laws going to have to change to reflect these? I mean, what an interesting subject that Terry brings up. I don't know if we're going to see those kinds of changes, but I mean, as somebody who I was married for 28 years. So to sit there and say that people don't take commitment seriously. I mean, if, if you know a marriage isn't working and you're trying for that long uh, to make it work, I, I certainly feel that I personally was very committed to my marriage. The clients that I work with were very committed when they went into the marriage. Um, I can think of maybe one instance where it was a young couple who got married and were divorced within two years. They realized they weren't a good match and it was a very simple and easy divorce, which it should have been. They were young people who just made a foolish mistake. But I think a lot of people are very serious about marriage. I think it's still something that's really important to, in our society. People do want to have that long-term commitment, but I don't think it is as important as it was, say, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. I think that there are a lot more people out there that, um, especially young people, who are staying single for much longer. Um, I was married at, you know, barely 20 years of age, whereas now, you know, I have nieces and nephews that are getting married, you know, well, 35, 40 years old. Um, so I think people are, are, are realizing they don't have to get married. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be um, part of your life plan. But at the same time, I don't think it's going away. I don't think it's something that people are just going to write off um, because the, the family really still is a, a, a key component of our communities. And, and it's, it's something that I don't think is, it's going to evolve. It's going to change. It's definitely going to look different, but I don't think marriage is going to disappear. And I think the fact that we, we, we have um, people who are homosexual that can get married and um, they wanted that, right. They wanted the, the right and the ability to be married as well. So I think what we're seeing is it's just changing a bit. The types of families we're seeing are evolving and, and changing, but I don't think marriage itself is something that people just want to toss out the window. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My, fav my favorite part about uh, pe people criticizing uh, marriage equality and uh, the gay and lesbian communities uh, demand to be treated equally was that it would denigrate the tradition of marriage, which was experiencing a 50 percent divorce rate among heterosexuals. That was my favorite assertion of all of them. Marcus, I interrupted you there. What were you about to say? Well, I was about to just—I was about to say that there are legislative changes that changes that do happen to recognize the different types of relationships that people are in, and I think that those changes will probably happen when it comes to polyamorous relationships. But it will take some time. I mean, in Alberta, it, it was only last year that legislation came into force, which really gave common law couples the same rights to property as people who were in marriages, right? So now, uh, in Alberta, just like in many provinces, in in the Canada, uh, common law couples, they have the same rights to dividing up the assets as people who were married. So essentially they're treated the same, the same in the eyes of the law now, whereas before they weren't. 
And that just recognizes the fact that many, many more people are choosing not to get married for whatever reason, right? And a lot of this has to do in what you're talking about, what a lot of your viewers are talking about are personal choices. And that's one of the reasons that um, what we think we're doing with legal coaching and what Joanne's doing with legal coaching, we think that that's really important because there needs to be the ability for people to choose the type of legal service that's going to work for them, work within their budget, work within their needs and their means. And legal coaching, you know, through a service like ours, Coach My Case, that's an option. It's different than the, than the traditional models um, that have not been working up to this point in giving everybody access to legal services. Um, and that's, you know, good because not everyone fits the same mold. Let me ask you this in closing. We, we, we uh, asked our audience to send us questions and they have. And I, and I know we're going to have to leave a bunch on the table, which is unfortunate. We've asked the two of you to join us for an hour. The hour's up. And I know you've got a lot of other things to get to. Uh, but this from Rene, uh, he wonders at what age, uh, it's somewhat specific, at what age can a child choose who they live with? Is a court order necessary? Um, I don't know, an MEP, is that a, a maintenance enforcement program? Is that what that is? Um, is a court order necessary for maintenance enforcement or an MEP? Or is the recalculation plan good enough? At what age can a child choose who they live with? Joanne? I'm going to, I'm going to turn this over to Marcus because okay. that would depend on the province and I don't practice in Alberta. Oh, so. fair, fair. Well, I think there's no set age uh, for when a child can just choose who they live with. Um, what the court is looking at are numerous different factors, including the age of the child, the maturity of the child, the intelligence of the child. And also they're looking at whether or not a parent has coerced the child or manipulated the child into making that choice. And so there's a, all these factors that need to be taken into consideration. But what I can tell you is that when a child is about 15 years old or 16 years old in Alberta, the court quite often we'll just say the child can vote with their feet. Um, if the child just decides that's it, I'm going to dad's house. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to stay with mom anymore. Then, you know, the, what's the, what's anybody going to do? The court's going to be very reluctant to, you know, get a police enforcement clause and put it in an order and have the police show up and drag the child back to mom's house. That's just not going to happen. So at a certain age, um, I think the court recognizes that the child can just vote with their feet. But before that time, uh, children can Children's voices do matter and they can be heard in court, but you need to look at all those factors that I just mentioned, the intelligence, maturity of the child and whether or not uh, either parent has manipulated the child into making that decision. I'll tell you what, I, I know for a fact that our audience has appreciated this uh, this frank discussion. And, and obviously, we've just scratched the surface for a lot of people. But you've given us a lot of things to think about on on an admittedly complex subject. Marcus Six, I was talking about Coach My Case. You can find it at coachmycase.ca. This is a, a service aimed to help Canadians going it alone in court because they can't afford a lawyer. He was a social worker before he became a lawyer, founder of Crossroads Law out of Calgary in Vancouver. And Joanne Stark joining us from Vancouver. She's practiced in bc and saskatchewan uh, published a book called mastering the art of legal coaching also works as director of advocacy for the canadian bar association the bc branch thank you to both of you we appreciate your time thank you thank you Ryan.
You bet. You can follow both of those two uh, on Twitter. And, and our thanks as well and our apologies to Ian Holloway. Unfortunately, the the, the uh, you know, whatever it was, the Wi-Fi connection or whatever it was made it uh, impossible for us to continue with him as part of our panel. But we certainly appreciate his availability as a regular columnist for Canadian Lawyer Magazine and a dean of law at the University of Calgary. So that was a, a tough call to make. But we had to we had to thank him for his time. Wanted to give a shout out to the team at Eden Landscaping right now as, as spring is knocking on the door, so to speak. They're getting ready to go. Go to work. And a big part of what they do is, and, and here's what a lot of people like about Eden Landscaping they're going to design your project, your dream yard, and then they're going to build it. You don't have to hire a landscape architect and then contract out the building or whatever the case may be. So if, if it's a retaining wall, a gazebo, Sam's favorite, the pergola, if it's going to be an outdoor kitchen, a swim spa, or maybe new flower boxes. I mean, some addition to just make you more proud to call your house, your home. Eden Landscaping can make it happen. They've been doing it for more than 20 years. You can check them out online. See the work that they've done at landscapeedmonton.ca. Also want to remind you that the team at Friesen Brothers is wide open for business for the first time ever in Edmonton. It's their 15th Alberta location and rave reviews doesn't even cover it. I was telling you the other day about their Montreal smoked tofu that I tried. They've also got their pizza. This isn't like grocery store pizza. They've got pizza in my mind that's going to give every other pizza pie in the city of Edmonton a run for its money, plus craft beer on tap, a smash burger station, and that smokehouse unbelievable they proudly feature alberta honey producers alberta soap makers you've got to see how they approach supporting local friesen brothers is alberta grown and alberta owned same goes for the team at st albert and sherwood dodge they've been serving albertans with the best selection of dodge trucks and jeeps in the province for many many years Brand new location, though, in St. Albert. If you haven't yet checked it out, beautiful. They're excited for that Grand Cherokee L that's coming out. This is that Jeep Grand Cherokee with a third row of seats, seven seats in it. And then, of course, the return of the Grand Wagoneer that's going to give all those other luxury SUVs a run for their money. You'll find the best selection at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Also want to send you to Park Power. You're going to pay somebody for your natural gas, electricity, and internet, right? You're going to pay somebody. Why not take your business to Park Power at Park Power? with the promo code 2021-REALTALK. They're going to give you 70 bucks off your first bill, whether it's a commercial or a residential account, or hey, maybe both. Plus, they take 10% of their profits. Follow them on social media. You'll see them doing this with the big checks. 10% of their profits go back into the community to nonprofits they support with Park Power, which is absolutely fantastic stuff. We're going to be talking about finances and attracting investment in just a little bit, but we wanted to get to more of the emails that you've been sending in to us to talk at ryanjesperson.com. This was one out of Grand Prairie, Alberta that caught our eye yesterday. This is from Corey in GP. He says, you know, you've been talking a bit about private school funding, Ryan, including reading emails on it, and it's been a real eye-opener for me. Corey says, I've always been a fierce advocate for strong public schools, and, and, I've, and I've advocated that private schools should receive no public dollars. But after hearing about how some of the schools aren't just for the elite and how some actually can cater towards special needs kids, I can see the other point of view. 
And I've started to see the value in having some private schools, especially with the absence of more public dollars being invested. And he says, and I'd love if you could dig into it on Real Talk. The great thing about your show is that we can head into these conversations with an open mind to try to understand different perspectives and to be open to changing our minds. Corey, my man. He says, my child is one who's been affected by these puff funding cuts, these program unit funds. He says, at my son's school, they now have one teacher for two pre-kindergarten classes that run concurrently because one of the teachers was laid off. Can you imagine one teacher for two pre-kindergarten classes? I don't know how you could do that. We don't pay. I mean, you know, as soon as I say this, the Internet's going to explode. We don't pay teachers enough, quite frankly. I know someone's going to say, oh, they get get their summers off. It's like, dude, you go teach a classroom full of pre-kindergarten, kindergarten kindergarten or grade one kids. And you tell me how you stay on top. Oh, my gosh. He says, Corey says, on top of that, they also laid off half the EAs, the educational assistants for each classroom. And they cut access to psychology, physiotherapy and occupational therapy. He says, we're, we're counting our lucky stars that our son still gets access to a speech pathologist. How is one teacher to effectively teach two different classrooms at the same time? The answer, they don't. It becomes the responsibility of the EAs and the speech pathologist to pick up the slack, which means every kid gets even less attention than the kids did last year. He says, of course, I've emailed my MLA happens to be Tracy Allard of the Aloha Gate controversy after the cuts were announced. And she responded in typical government fashion, denying that puff funding was cut. Did you see the health minister yesterday saying they weren't fighting with doctors? Comedy. Corey says instead, the government was offering the schools more flexibility in how to use their money. And that if any changes in in staffing or puff programming happen, I should contact the school board or the school in question about the funding decisions. It's what the province is doing to municipalities, too. Don't blame us for your increase in property taxes. Corey says they clearly didn't have any interest in how the government's change in funding hurt our special needs kids in the province. So where does this leave my son? Well, he's headed to kindergarten next year, which no longer has the puff funding. So I guess I'm supposed to cross my fingers and, and hope he gets by. My wife and I will try to work on things with him outside of school, like learning through play. But he needs a chance to be a kid, too. Now, if there was a private school he was eligible for that he'd receive all the support he needs, you better believe we would do anything we could to make it happen financially, to make it possible, to make it work. Sadly, there's not an option where we live. Like most parents, we want the best for our child. This early childhood development is so critical to long-term success, to integration into society. Cutting funding to special needs kids is not only cruel, but it's incredibly short-sighted. The more children we can help integrate into society over their development, the less financial burdens we will encounter, the less it will cost the government in the long run. But like so many other things, Cuts to post-secondaries, cuts to health care, trying to sell off our parks under our noses, opening up the Rockies for mining. This government doesn't seem to care about the long-term impacts of their decisions. That from Corey in Grand Prairie. Corey, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate you sending your email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. He touches on research funding. I saw an interesting point yesterday, Sam, where somebody said this government is promoting and celebrating researchers at the University of Alberta that are working on potential vaccines for COVID-19 that are doing research in these areas without a hint of irony. 
Oh, yeah. Without a hint of irony that they're cutting <laughs> tens of millions of dollars. This government's already cut in total more than four hundred million dollars from post-secondaries, including research programs. Yeah. And and I mean, like, I'm not surprised at this at all. I, I think that we have a government right now that just sort of expects universities to be there and to fund themselves and to and to know what they need. And they're just like, ah, yeah, you don't need us. You guys are good on your own. It's the same thing you're doing to, to school boards, the same thing they're doing to municipalities. I mean, municipalities, I think, are getting one of the biggest ends of the stick on this because they literally have no mechanism to raise more revenue they have taxes and user fees and that's it that's and it. those are already spent out so I and think they can't run deficits yes exactly so, legally they can't run deficits so they're in a tough spot now when it comes to d- decisions that governments are making when it comes to things like spending or attracting investment there was a twitter thread yesterday that, that gained a lot of traction and it wasn't from, you know, just some person taking pot shots at the finance minister or, or some armchair accountant. It was from a CEO of an investment company. And so it caught our attention. and we, we thought it might be worth getting Kelly Thompson on the show. Kelly's the chair and CEO of Osmondson Holdings Corporation, a startup investment company based in Fort Saskatchewan, currently oversees all operations, including international investments across North America and Europe. Um, Kelly, welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, this is I'm, it's an interesting conversation to get into because, as you know, I don't have to tell you that your tweet really picked up a lot of traction. Um, when you were talking, you said, hey, you said, hey, listen, uh, basically out of the gates here, you wanted to take a look. You said, I've seen a lot of posts lately about how the premier and the Alberta government are affecting external investment in Alberta. You said, as the chair and CEO of an investment company, I want to talk a bit about what the government's doing right and what the government's doing wrong. To present this in a positive way, why don't we take a look first at, in your assessment, what the provincial government is doing right? Sounds good. Um, So the first thing that it's obvious is that they're really championing um, oil and gas, coal, and the energy sector as a whole, they're really a champion for. Um, They're, you know, expanding to the network of investment or the Alberta investment offices globally. Um, which is a great step. And I think that the energy that they have for oil and gas, coal, those sorts of projects is really good to see because you can tell that they're passionate about something, that they're caring about something. Uh, So that's really what is the positives in the government is that they're not just, you know, chasing away all investment. Okay, but you can care about something that's still a poor investment, right? Can we acknowledge that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's things that I care very deeply about and that I would, you know, I like going to fancy restaurants and having nice meals, but when I spend money on it, it's still a terrible investment. And I look at everything in the, you know, terms of investment. Sometimes you care about things that, you know, in a business sense, you might not want to care as much about. Or in the, or in this context of what we're discussing, you may love heading out to fancy restaurants, but that doesn't mean that you should open up a fancy restaurant or that you should invest in a fancy restaurant, right? I mean, you talk about this and you say the one common thread with investors, and Sam, I do have the thread up on my screen if you want to show it. You say, we're always looking to make the most amount of money from a situation, period. You say, I'm looking at this as someone who's established in Alberta, but I, I want to look at this like I would any other investment. Kelly, you touch on something there. We have to take the emotion 
out of investment. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm like an entry level amateur. If you saw my iTrade account, you'd shake your head because it's a disaster. It shows that I was very bullish on legal cannabis and it shows that I have paid the price for that bullishness. Uh, I have a lot to learn and I have no problem imposing that necessary humility upon myself. I don't know what I'm talking about, but you do. Can we talk about taking emotion out of investment? Because I don't see it at the provincial government level. It's all about emotional investing. I mean, when we're talking about investing, investing is really funny because, you know, even from the most amateur person who buys literally just one stock and, you know, waits to see what happens all the way up to, you know, the biggest investors in the world that have funds worth billions, people should be doing the same kind of research into it. They should be doing the same kind of logical thinking into those investments. You know, I, I'm not the largest investor in the world, not by far, but I still act, even if I'm buying only one share of a company, I'm still acting as if I'm buying that entire company because, you know, business is simultaneously something that should have no emotion, but you also need to, um, to quote the office, Michael Scott says, business is the most personal thing there is because it's how people get paid. It's how people, uh, you know, make their living. It's, it, it's the backbone of our world right now. So you, you need to recognize that uh, dichotomy, that difference, but also you need to be able to strip the emotion out when it makes sense. This is my first interview with a CEO where Michael Scott from The Office has been quoted. And I feel like if we had coffee mugs already at this point, I would send you a coffee mug for that. It might not say world's best boss and you wouldn't have bought it yourself, but you'd still get the mug. Let's talk about in your assessment what the government's doing wrong in the context of attracting investment where do we need to start the conversation i think it's important to really look at the state that alberta's in right now and kind of say okay well what would be the next logical steps what would be um you know if you were running the economy as a whole what kind of things would you do to try to stabilize it you know the economy was starting to see a decline it was kind of starting to fail before covid um and then covid just kind of sped everything up and the thing is, is that's not the nail in our coffin. I'm, Alberta has seen recessions before. Alberta has seen many times that, you know, things have not done the best. Um, the economy has not been our friend. And so we need to look at ways to get out of that. We need to look at, um, you know, ways to bring in investment for people, at the end of the day, for people to get, you know, money, food on their tables, that sort of thing. So... When I look at what the government's doing, uh, the budget wasn't terrible. There was some things that I liked, but I think the overall culture that they have on how they're running Alberta, how the UCP is looking at running Alberta, is almost a chase to the bottom. There's a common saying in sales that, you know, if you're selling a premium product, you can't always try to beat everyone on price because then you just keep cheapening your product. You keep, uh, you know, trying to undercut your competitors. And really, I think Alberta is a premium product. I think that investing in Alberta should be one of the things that people are doing um, because this is a great place. I'm biased. Obviously, I've lived in Alberta basically my entire life. I love Alberta. And that's why I'm saying, why are we undercutting the services? Why are we you know, um, not fighting this brain drain that we're starting to see in many different sectors? And why are we trying to have this race to the bottom? 
Yeah, and and the brain drain is real, and the brain drain is something that, in my opinion, takes at least a generation to recover for, uh, to recover from. I mean, you know, we could even dig into this. Is not why you're here, Kelly, but we could even talk about you know why are nurses' salaries. Uh, for example, among the highest in Canada. And a big reason for that is because Alberta had to work hard to attract nurses when we were experiencing a population boom because we worked hard to chase them away uh, in the early 1990s. Um, I'm opening up a can here. I recognize that. When we go to osmondsonholdings.com, your website splashed across the page. Let's build something great. It's positive. You've taken a message of motivation. So if you are advising this government on preparing Alberta, on on setting up and well positioning this province for a post covid economy, how would you uh, lay the foundation to build something great? Let's get specific. What would you invest in or what would you do to attract investment? I think right now. You know, if I was to walk into the legislature tomorrow and give them all my ideas right now, we need to build on what we're good at and we need to build something right now. I like all of my friends, all the people I'm talking to personally, you know, they're always commenting on how COVID showed how much was imported from different places, how much was brought in. We're not going to be able to manufacture or farm or, you know, create everything that we need here in Alberta. I think that's unrealistic, but I think we definitely could work on you know working on the supply lines i'm a huge fan of global trade and i'm a huge fan of uh, globalization in general but i think at the end of the day we need to you know stop having other people always create things for us and then bring them here we need to really improve that for ourselves also we need to look at things like agriculture uh chemical development there's a lot of mines here because of our you know extensive history with oil and gas there's a lot of people who really understand uh, you know, it, it, we have chemists, we have engineers, we have people who really understand that side of things. I'm no expert in it. That's why I, you know, can't specifically say those, you know, what sort of things excite me. But the overall idea of taking it to the next step of saying, okay, we have all these experts here. What kind of fields can we go into that further builds on it while diversifying so we're not reliant on the price of oil? I don't think it's makes sense. I don't know why we're still depending on, you know, the price of a barrel of oil to determine whether our budget stacks up or not. I think it's ridiculous. And I think that we have the emotional willpower. We have the can do attitude here in Alberta to really diversify and to look at other things. There's a lot of great ideas. I think if you went to any Albertan and asked them, what's your business idea? What's, you know, if you could open your own business tomorrow, I think you would get millions of different answers. And I think we need to build on that. I think we need to make it easier for Albertans to open businesses. I think we need to stop fighting um, Albertans when they want to work in public service. And I think we need to try to build up communities so that we don't have this culture of people come here, make money, and then leave. We have families, we have generational constructs that are growing in our communities and that people can really build roots. They can build those strong communities that economies need. I had a chance yesterday to speak to the Young Presidents Organization, the YPO, and we spent a lot of time talking about public perception and global perception of this as a jurisdiction. 
you know, one of the questions was, why do Eastern Canadians feel the way that they do about Alberta? Or why does Washington, why does this White House feel the way that it does about Alberta's energy sector? Or, or why does French energy giant Total or BP or anybody else that's written off, uh, written down oil sands assets? Or, or, or why do, you know, why, why does the IMF, why do all these groups, um, you know, people talk about, you know, the, the Green New Deals. I mean, there were a ton of things to talk about. Why do people target Alberta? Or why are big investors like Warren Buffett uh, why does Mark Carney uh, provide advice along these lines? Why is BlackRock moving? I mean, these are just off the top of my head, Kelly. I mean, the, the list is long and devastating, quite frankly. It's devastating. Um, but but why are these investors steering away from Alberta? And a big part of it, they've spelled it out. They've spelled it out that they don't see meaningful environmental policy or they don't see a meaningful commitment to what they know that their investors demand to see. They may not be seeing a meaningful indigenous consultation. I mean, that's why the Northern Gateway Pipeline collapsed. Maybe, you know, people are, are, are perceiving there to be a problem around a lack of meaningful action. And there seems to be, I think, with this provincial government, and this is my opinion, uh, a lack of awareness around how some of the government's actions are portrayed or are perceived outside of the province. And you touch on this in your thread yesterday. I thought you nailed it where you say Alberta is seeing more highly skilled and highly educated individuals leave the province. When these individuals leave, others do as follows. Whether it's family of those leaving, friends, or people noticing a reduction in service in their communities, there's a weakness that we have to be super aware of. Here it is. You say, for me as an investor, if there's a significant amount of highly skilled and highly educated people leaving an area, it's a signal that there's something wrong on a governance level in that area. Let's dig into that. I mean, very rarely is there a significant brain drain. There's a significant amount of you know highly skilled, highly educated people that leave, and it's not governance. You, as the the people governing that region, if it's a town, like a municipality, a province, a country, if you're seeing those highly skilled, highly educated people leaving you should be looking at why is that and you should be actively working to fight against it. Um, and it, it's like when you have a business that if your turnover rate is high, other people applying to it, you know, if they look on Indeed and they look through the ratings and they see how many people have left the job in the past year, if they're not interested, if they see that there's management issues, if they see that there's a, you know, a, a corporate culture that's not working with, how, what they believe in, if it's something that's adverse to those workers, they're not going to apply, they're not going to be interested, or they're going to apply, they're going to put their, you know, however long they work there, they're going to get their money and they're going to go out, but they're not going to actively work to build that company. They're not going to be fully invested in that company. The exact same with uh, on a province-wide scale is sure, even if we're having these highly skilled and highly educated people leave and we're replacing them, we're still having those people leave in the first place. If they've been here for three generations, four generations, and they leave, and then we start with a new one for scratch, they might just say, okay, well, I'm going to work in Alberta. Oh, there's a better job in BC. I can go get that. There's a better job in Ontario, whatever it may be. You want to build a strong community. I'm a huge fan of that community stabilization because that's when you can have a diversified economy that's strong. If you're just you know, trying to use the same old boomtown techniques of come in, make your money, and then leave, that's not how you govern a province properly, I don't think. You write that the province was built on oil and gas. There's no denying that. But as an investor, it doesn't interest me. 
I know there's going to be a lot of people that would immediately say to you, Alberta has a ton of, of natural resource yet to be harvested, let me say, uh, whether that's fracked, mined, drilled or otherwise. There's existing global demand and there will continue to be global demand for decades to come. So as an investor, why doesn't it interest you? It's so it, to start off, I really wanted to when I when I started OHC Osmonds and Holdings Corporation, I really wanted to ensure that everything was very long term, that I'm looking. I think I said in one tweet, I'm looking at a minimum of 25, 30 years preferably longer. Most of the investments I'm making are like 100-year investments that I'm thinking the economy is still going to be around and will actively support that uh, you know, investment. So that's the kind of mind frame that I come to this. With oil, is there you know, that amount? Sure. Uh, you know, it might still be in the ground, but we're seeing you know, the different global protocols and policies that are coming in to try to divest away from oil and gas usage. We're seeing people want cleaner energy. We're seeing auto manufacturers bring in electric vehicles, and we're seeing replacements for plastics that use more natural uh, sources and more natural ingredients. Uh, As a whole, when you just look at the aspect, I'm personally not interested in, it's why I don't do stock trading, I don't buy to just sell, you know, a few days later hoping I make a product. I'm looking at those long-term investments. With oil, with, and with the size of company that I am right now, I'm not interested in making, you know, those significant intra or investments into something that I'm not sure how long it's going to stay around, but we know has a finite end. We know people are getting less interested in it. And we know that we're looking for the next big thing. We're looking for the next step already. And that's a natural progression, you know, of our economy, of our system that we're in. One of the big investments that, Jason Kenney promised he'd make while he was leader of the United Conservatives in opposition and on the campaign trail before he was elected premier was that he would establish a war room that would fight for Alberta's energy industry. Uh, your, your body language says it all already, but I'm going to need you to put it into words for people listening on the podcast. Give me your assessment of the Canadian Energy Center and what it does to potential investment into Alberta. I mean, when I'm trying to close a business deal, I, I don't work with the person. I just yell at them until they submit. That's, you know, a proven technique. I'm kidding. It's I don't understand a war room for one sector that has this antagonistic view towards, you know, other people. And this is the thing that I find. I, I think it was Shannon Phillips talking about how everything becomes a war. Everything becomes, you know, a fight. And that's in the replies to my tweets, I've got told that, you know, I've got an ax to grind with Jason Kenney and that I'm burning bridges and that I'm a fraud. And I'm not saying this stuff because I want the province to fail. I don't think there's a single person in Alberta that's like, you know what, I think Alberta should do worse. I'm saying this stuff because I would love for Jason Kenney to say, you know what, we're going to invest more. We're going to buckle down. We want to be the most diversified economy ever. I would be happy to be proven wrong. And that's the thing is, I, I just want Alberta as a whole to get better. It's not about, at the end of the day, whether it's UCP or NDP or whatever party is in the legislature. My end goal as an Albertan is for Alberta to do better. Um, as an investor, like I said in that thread, if I'm looking at the province and I say, you know, these are the reasons I wouldn't invest, I just move on. I don't, you know, try to argue with them. I don't try to fight with them. I don't go, oh, well, maybe I need to revisit my business techniques because I know what works. I know what I'm looking to do. 
and I will find another market to invest in. The world is so easy. It's ridiculous how simple it is to invest in uh, global projects. I mean, there's, you know, more forms to sign. There's more things that you need to deal with, but really it's not like it used to be where you need to travel to that place. I've had, you know, meetings with people in Europe. I've had people with meetings in Asia. It, it's not difficult. You just need to figure out the time zones and make it work. It's, it, it, the global market is much smaller than I think a lot of people realize. And so when you're fighting with investors and saying, well, you're doing it wrong, when you have that kind of back to the wall fighting with them, I don't understand how they think that's successful. Well, this was the punch to the gut for me um, because I hope you're wrong, but I suspect you might not be. And you say we have the ability to be a world leader. We should be a world leader. But as it stands right now, Alberta is an absolutely terrible investment. That sucks to hear. Do you think that that can be turned around? Absolutely. I mean, once again, I have a massive amount of faith in the Alberta people. We, we really want to, you know, pull up the bootstraps and do a good day's work. I highly believe in that. And that's, I mean, if a government wants to go in and look at, okay, let's actually talk to investors. Let's actually figure out what they're looking for. Great. And, and just because I view it this way, doesn't mean that there's not going to be other investment. There's not going to be people who will say, you know, I can make a quick buck here. Um, investors have so many different ways of looking at things, but in my honest opinion, this is not somewhere that if I didn't live here, I wouldn't really be interested in because you have, like I said, you have communities that their doctors are leaving after having practices for decades. You have um, many people that are saying, well, once I leave for university, I'm not coming back. It's that idea of, you know, that, oh, well, we'll replace it. But still that repetition, that uh, turnover rate is something that scares me away. Kelly Thompson is the chair and CEO of Osmondson Holding Corporations. You can find them online at osmondsonholdings.com. The author of a tweet thread that, as they say, went viral yesterday. Thanks for making time for us the day after. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. On our live chat right now, I'm taking a look uh, at what our uh, YouTube real talkers have to say. Uh, you know, Mark says, and I love, you know what? I love knowing there's names that we start to recognize here because they've been real talkers, like they've been audience members. And then and then they've reached out to us and we've connected with them and we've heard their perspective on the show. And then now there's more layers. Mark Doran is one of them, the founder, uh, a co-founder of the Polluter Pay Federation. Mark is working really hard uh, to, to help Alberta sort out its orphan well problem and uh, mark was on the show a while back and you can find that if you subscribe to our podcast if you subscribe to our youtube uh, you can find it there he says new industrial investors do not want to get stuck with the bill for the sins of previous industry participants it is fundamental business you know tied with granting favors to friends this scares off new money that from mark haas uh, always good to hear from Haas says, indeed, there will continue to be global demand. But as they say, the early bird gets the worm. There's value in a proactive approach to the ever changing energy landscape. Heidi says at the end of the day, these corporations follow the money. Green energy is now the new thing because society is demanding it. If they didn't think there was no money in it, they would continue to fight it. Michelle says, I want to see traffic driven wind turbines up and down our highways by 2030. It's mind blowing that this is overlooked. Google it. That from Michelle, who goes on to say, 
when the war room started showing up in the news, I literally thought I misunderstood it. I, it couldn't possibly be what I understood it to be. It turns out I was right. It's a joke. Scott says the war room is a travesty of public tax dollars. I mean, <laughs> the thing he says, it's a shell company for siphoning our dollars into certain people's pockets. The thing for me, I could go for hours and hours on the Canadian Energy Center on the war room. The thing for me is the even the, the way, Sam, that it was founded, the way that it was established as a private corporation funded by government dollars whose whose directors are all government ministers. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I may be wrong. You have to check. It's you can Google it yourself, but I'm pretty sure it's Minister Doug Schweitzer, Sonia Savage and Jason Nixon, I believe, are listed as, as the directors off the top of my head. I could be wrong. So you have government ministers, elected officials listed as the directors of a public tax dollar funded entity that's established as a corporation so it cannot be foiped. So there cannot be a freedom of information request. The books are not open. That alone to me should that that that's a 100 red flags flying all around it. They should just fly red flags all around the perimeter of the building. That to me, I mean, I can't even get past that let alone the fact that we don't have the option to find out where the money's going. You said Savage, Nixon, and Schweitzer, correct? Uh, that's uh, what I thought it was, yeah. Yes, that is correct. Sorry, All three? I just fact-checked okay. that for oh, you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah, that. No. Um, yeah, it, it just... I think what gets me is Kenny campaigned on a war room, and he runs for the hills anytime somebody calls it a war room. <laughs> it, like you know what I mean? It's like they they establish it at the Canadian Energy Center, and they they fake being journalists sometimes when they try to to investigate issues, and it's a lot of just sort of shifty under the table practices. And you're right, we can't foip them because they're a private corporation. They're completely funded by government. I don't even know what to call them. Like I called them a crown corporation at one time, but I don't know if that's correct because like yeah, they they have they have government ministers on their board, and they're government funded. But I don't think they're a crown corporation. Yeah, and when you say you're, they're faking being journalists, I mean, we should clarify people that have been featured in stories written by Canadian Energy Center staffers have followed up and made public statements saying we were unaware of who we were talking about. They did not identify themselves they, as staffers they, of the war room. Yeah, they literally will call particularly things like environmental groups and say, I'm a, I'm a journalist with the Canadian Energy Center, which is so unbelievably far from the truth. So I think yeah. that that's. That's one thing. I mean, everybody loves the word boondoggle. I think that that's a good description for the war room. I mean, it's such an abject disaster, but it's so ideologically connected to Jason Kenney's vision that we'll never be rid of it. Like, because he's stubborn. He's and stubborn. He, and he, yeah. he can't admit that he's and, wrong. And, and so much of what is driving the way he's trying to move the Alberta economy is just stubbornness. It is a belief in one way of doing things. And because I'm Alberta's conservative white knight, it has to be the correct way. Yeah. Blind Melon says the war room is an international embarrassment. The only thing I hope is that people don't hear about it. Like, I wish they would just stop advocating on behalf of Alberta. Ken makes a good point. Ken says the war room is answerable to the Auditor General, however, has already been reported to the AG to have been cited for non-competitive contracts and other problems. I mean, it's it's scandal after scandal after scandal. I would, you know, it would never, you know, I always love to, to play flip when I'm talking to my friends that are ardent UCP supporters on this. And I'll say, can you imagine if Rachel Notley would have established something like the war room and done so and, and made it secret and 
and handed out, you know, I mean, faked, you know, stolen the logo out of the gates, stolen the second logo, found that the graphic design company had a fake dog on its website, a stock photo. They were like, here's our office dog. Here's our office dog. And then it was a stock photo of a dog. Like who lies about the dog in their office? And what is it? If you're lying about a dog, like if you're ever dating somebody that kicks a dog, leave them immediately. Right. Leave them. Let alone lies about having a dog, you know, and what about the Canadian Energy Center? Like, why is the Canadian Energy Center not fighting for for solar and for wind and for 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 all all the other forms of I mean, I mean, we we talked about nuclear energy. I know that they're big on hydrogen and in Sturgeon County. We can talk about geothermal. I mean, there are so many exciting things happening in Alberta, Canada's energy capital. Why is the Canadian Energy Center not advocating for those because because we know i mean it's a rhetorical question question. we know the answer it's because it's not their friends aren't in wind and solar uh one thing i i I want to plug here just because i find it absolutely fantastic um when it started coming out that they'd stolen their logo and then stolen their second logo and had this fake graphic design website there is a website out there uh, I believe it's uh, energywarroomlogogenerator.com and you can go to it and it will give you a logo and a tagline stolen from some other corporation that you can now apply to the Canadian Energy Center. So at least there's some fun satire to be involved with this. Oh, here there you go. go. So you could. OK, yeah. so you could go with like Disney. For example, there you go. You could generate. There you go. Oh, that looks like an original logo. People listening on the podcast are going to know what we're talking about. Remember, you can see it on YouTube. It looks strangely like the logo of the most valuable company on planet Earth right now. There's this one from Adidas or the Canadian Energy Center. This one, too. It's pretty funny. Okay, so there you have it. The Coca-Cola Canadian Energy Center script. Maybe we'd get away with that one. I don't know. Uh, The team at Local Waste wants to remind you that if you're locked into some deal, but it's just not working out for you anymore. I mean, you've been doing business with maybe a big multinational waste management company. They don't even return your phone calls. They don't work with you on price. They sure as hell haven't been with you through the ups and downs of this past year. Local Waste is all about that. They love to talk trash and they love to earn your business it's why they want you to contact them directly you can see everything they do at localwaste.ca and a reminder if there's a bee in your bonnet and you want real talkers to hear all about it local waste presents trash talk every friday you can send us the email to talk at ryanjesperson.com make sure you put trash talk in the subject line presented by local waste the team at clean air club wants you to breathe easy save money at the same time and they do it by ensuring that you're changing your furnace filters on schedule it's one of the things that we neglect as homeowners most of us anyway not because we mean to but the consequences can be serious we're more aware now of pure fresh clean air perhaps this year more than ever before at cleanairclub.ca you can do your family a favor do yourself a favor delivered right to your door also want to remind you that the team at Westworld Computers knows that not everybody has a huge budget to upgrade their computers, their Apple Watch, maybe their iPhone. That's why they're proud to present a pretty significant lineup of gently pre-owned gear. They've got the software reloaded where applicable. They re-warranty everything. And of course, the price sees a little haircut too. Go talk to Daryl and his team. They've been in a family business operating in Alberta for more than 40 years at Westworld Computers. So I got this note from uh, one of your biggest fans, Sam, one of your loved ones. 
Kelly, your partner in crime, your partner in life. And out of the gates today, when I asked you, you talked about representing yourself in court. Correct. And you said, well, for a speeding ticket. And I kind of dismissed it. No, no, that's fine. Kinda, no, 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 no. I, I want to. This is my. I want to. I want to approach the bench, so to speak, here. And 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 I want to look you in the eyes and say, Sam, I'm sorry for dismissing the story of you fighting a speeding ticket because I fought speeding tickets and there was nothing spectacular about them. And I was and I was just a punk tying up the courts. But it sounds to me, Kelly says this demands the story. It sounds to me like you and all like you and all investigator well, up in like, here. Yeah. Okay. So I, I gave the Coles notes on Twitter, but basically what happened is. I was I was flagged on an off ramp um, still going the highway speed I was like starting to exit onto it and the point where my car was pulled over and the point where the the sign saying that the speed had changed were so close to each other that I just like I had suspicions and literally went back to the same place took photos took measurements of the distance between the signs calculated how fast I would have had to be going to be flagged in that zone and like the only logical conclusion is they were aiming the radar gun outside of the 70 zone into where you can decelerate from 100 down to 70. So that was my case. I had photos. I had measurement. I had math. I had <laughs> a real ironclad case that I was going to slap down on the bench. And uh, yeah, the cop was there. I saw him in the back of the room. And before I could say anything, the crown moved to acquit. It was very disappointing. I love it. <laughs> and I'm proud of you. And I'm glad that Kelly followed up and said, let him tell the story. Jesper said, let him tell the story. <laughs> Les is calling you Speedy Sam. I love this. You say you walked in. You say I had photos. I had math. Unfortunately, <laughs> un unfortunately it's very difficult to argue with math. Um, I thought that was a, a really interesting conversation that, that we just had with Kelly Thompson, uh, CEO at Osmondson Holdings Corporation. Always love talking to young CEOs, right? They've got a bit of a different perspective. These are like leaders in their field, but they're they're young and they're approaching it from a bit of a different perspective. I, I mean, I first of all, I have a real affinity for smart young women named Kelly. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, uh, he yeah. brings this back. He's trying to score points at home on the <laughs> on the backs of our guests here. <laughs> But no, I think she's absolutely right. No, I'm and, talking and about I'm talking about Kelly Thompson. I, I am talking about Kelly Thompson. Okay. Well, you said she, so I'm just, you know, I'm just making sure you're talking about the right Kelly here. But I like what Kelly had to say in, in mm. and in referencing yesterday um, our interview, our exclusive with Shannon Phillips, uh, uh, former government minister, now in opposition MLA and finance critic. I noticed, by the way, we scooped CBC The National. They had the story last night, which was awesome. But Shannon talked that. about, and if you haven't seen the interview, you have to see it. The police chief down in Lethbridge spoke to media today. We do have a standing request in with him and i'm hoping um, we've got requests in now with two alberta police chiefs we're hoping to speak with dale mcphee as well with the edmonton police service um, but down in lethbridge chief this morning now i have to admit i've only been as we've been doing interviews here this is the truth i'm going to be honest with you i've been watching on our studio monitors the closed captioning and trying to get a sense of what chief is saying down in lethbridge uh, you can see the monitor there right above sam on our beautiful camera four which is still by the way available for your sponsorship you can reach out at media at ryanjesperson.com but Chief in Lethbridge essentially said this was an interesting one. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, I have not seen the interview. I only read the captioning. But he said to reporters, you got to be careful about judging these officers for allegedly surveilling Shannon Phillips when she was a minister. Only God can judge the officers, says the chief, channeling Tupac. Um, unfortunately, that is not the case. That is not the case. That's they, not that's not an appropriate thing for a chief of police. Only God, really, the chief of police believes that only God can judge people. So, so what is can, his job? Then? What, what's his job? Yeah. Why are you there? 
uh, Albertans, we've determined that we're going to be able to save $1.1 billion a year by canceling all police services because we've determined that only God can judge us. This from the police chief of Lethbridge. It's a remarkable story. It's a troubling story. And if you didn't see our interview yesterday with Shannon Phillips, I want to make sure that you check it out. Before we go, I wanted to read this. I got an email that, that put me back on my heels uh, in the best way from Chad. He wrote in on Monday and he said, Ryan and Sam, I've been waiting for a chance uh, to discuss my thoughts and feelings for the show. He says, it's, I wanted to write this out as my emotion in this space would likely make it difficult for me to properly express my thoughts spontaneously. He says, like so many, 2020 was quite the year for me. The birth of our son, Reed, is a clear highlight and positive being unceremoniously kicked out of a firm I've poured energy into for 15 years, being an epic low. He says, fantastic highs, epic lows. As a person who has filled my tank by serving community and being able to interact socially, both, both personally and professionally, the lockdown's been a struggle. But like most challenges in life, it's also provided opportunities. And one of the most impactful outcomes of the opportunity has been the ability to take in your show. He says, it's not always a great thing. Is that Aloha Gate coverage made me stop trying to work and run out my frustrations on the treadmill until I could focus on something else again? But still, in a way that no other media has before, you've created a link to community for me in a most positive way. Not only am I continually inspired and by challenged by real talk guests intellectually, but emotionally as well. He says, I've realized it's, it's not enough to be non-racist or that, that needing to be anti-racist was incredibly impactful. It forced me to reflect on ways that my complacency grounded in not being part of the problem has been wrong and frankly, not good enough for who I want to be. How about that? He says, I greatly appreciate that you have many guests that come at all topics with a, with a, a very different lens than I do. And it allows me to expand my perspective and my thinking. And most of all, I've appreciated how genuine this show is. Most recently, seeing you get all fired up about how the city of Edmonton is treating unhoused people. He says, thanks for that vernacular, by the way. It was powerful. Coupled with your vulnerability, the ability to call yourself out sets real talk apart. He says, thanks for all that the both of you put into this. He says, it's evident the hours on air are just the beginning of the effort required. He says, don't let the trolls in. And as your guest on Monday, Jen Lada, the Emmy Award winning sports anchor said, don't get caught counting eyeballs. Stay authentic. That from Chad. Unbelievable. Thank you for that, Chad. You have no idea that filled our tank. Tomorrow, we want to let you know we're very excited about the show to come, uh, both Sam and I, and we're going to be talking to some real movers and shakers on this Thursday morning. Uh, we wanted to give you a heads up as well. A week from tomorrow, we've got an exclusive sit down with Calgary's mayor, Nahed Nenshi. But tomorrow we take on bias on university campuses. Is it real? And if so, which way does it skew? That's next on Real Talk. We'll talk to you then.